Welcome to the Movie Planet Season 6, Episode 12. This week we're talking about 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark. With Joe. Yes, you're a man of many talents. And Steve. What are you trying to do, scare me? You sound like my mother. We've known each other for a long time. I don't believe in magic, a lot of superstitious hocus pocus. Welcome to the Movie Planet. Joining me is the indie to my Belloc. Or is it Beloche? Steve, how is life, sir? It's great. Long time no see. Long time no see. It's been a whole, what, three days? Three days. Yes, we had our fantasy football league owners meeting, uh, which Steve, you uh, you I organized and directed, and it went off without a hitch. You could tell you were well prepared for this meeting. Yeah, I thought I was surprised it actually paid off. But, uh, it, yes, yeah, yeah, with with very few arguments. It's just, uh, we won't, we won't mention the quarterback snafu of this. Well, let's keep in mind, Joker, some of us like to just watch the world burn. And when you put that rule out there, that's all you were doing. That's all I know. I was surprised it went, but eh, that's okay. Um, yeah. So that being said, uh, this week, you have not, well, you've been wanting to do the indie series forever. I, it seems like it's been like two years and we, I remember probably talking about which movies we should do. This was probably right when we got done with Spider-Man No Way Home, did the Infinity Saga. And it's like, what do we want to do next? And it says, I've always loved Indiana. And I was like, if there's any set of movies that I want to do that's safe for me, it's got to be this. Well, this week we are talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark for the action-adventure movie Pantheon. In this, we've got ourselves at number one, Die Hard. Number two, Mad Max Fury Road. Number three, John Wick. Number four, John Wick Chapter 2. Number five, John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. Number six, Die Hard with a Vengeance. And number seven, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Steve, I've already gone through these. I don't think I want to change any of my grades for these. What? Let's say you, sir. Do you want to change any of yours? Maybe, maybe that John Wick Chapter Three Parabellum grade. Maybe raise it a little bit higher. I don't. You know. You know. I was looking. I was looking at this the other day, and in, um, in the notes, and I actually looked real hard at that one, and I still think an eighty-two is right where it needs to be for me. Still think it's a B minus. It's a B minus. Even it's though better than average. It's what it's above average for it, sure. <laughs> That's a slap in the face right there. That's what that is. That's a full letter grade below the other John Wick. You can't say it's a full letter grade below that one. Yes, I do. I'm exhausted by that point. Oh, you're killing me, Smalls. Okay, so there's nothing else here? Uh, the only one that I've seen... Oh, Boy. I'm not giving my grade for Waterworld. Um, <laughs> it's okay. And, it's uh, already an F. We're good. Well, Die Hard with a Vengeance I loved. I remember seeing that one, but it has been a long time since I've seen it recently. Okay. Um, but I've seen that one a handful. That that's actually was my favorite among all of the diehards. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up some stuff today about Indiana Jones that parallels diehard today that you're not gonna like. Yeah, I have my grade where I'm at, and I'm very happy with what I'm at. 
I think you should be happy with the grade that you have because again, and you'll hear me say this for every indie podcast that we do. The Indiana Jones franchise, critically speaking, mirrors the Die Hard franchise. Well, I'm going to have to pay attention to your analogy on this one. I thought I about this a lot. It. I don't see it right now. Okay, so no other changes there. We're good to go? No, we're good to go. Okay, stop, share. Here we go. Now that we've had that business, <clears throat> let's get down to business! <clears throat> this week we're talking about 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark, a movie made for about $20 million that brought in $389.9 million. Well, that is a good, I mean, okay. Yeah, I'm surprised it's that much money that they spent $20 million on this thing because it seems like at least $100 million. Well, then that, again, that was 1981. Right. I'm going to do the inflation calculator right now. See what those numbers would be now. In 1981 dollars. Let's see. What was it? $20 $20,100,000. $20, okay. Calculate. That's around $66.9 for this movie. Uh -huh. It brought in $389.9. But it didn't bring it all in in 1981. No, this is theatrical box office. Oh, jeez. Yes. Okay, so we got to think. This is one. Under, under a billion? $1.3 billion. Wow. <laughs> yeah. $1.3 billion. We're talking Avengers level here. That's exactly. Uh, a movie, okay. Written by Lawrence Kasdan, George Lucas, and Philip Kaufman. Directed by Steven Spielberg. Music by John. Just give me the Oscar Williams. Mm -hmm. Opened on June 12th, 1981 with two other movies, Clash of the Titans and History Mill Brooks' History of the World Part 1. And back then you didn't have like a million movies in the theater. So the other movie that was in the theater was Cheech and Chong's Nice Dreams. <laughs> but it made $8.3 in its opening weekend. I'm looking at Cheech and Chong. It opened up in 1,300 theaters and made $0. No, no, no. It was in 1,387 theaters by, it looks like, oh, yeah, maybe that was its opening. Unless it unless, unless it opened in 1980. Okay. Because it was a 100% drop. Like, literally, everyone that went to see that said, screw it. We're going to see any of these three movies, and Cheech and Chong is out. And this was... 1981. This, okay, but okay, but this was opening week or what? Well, the ones that have an end next to them, Raiders, Clash, and History, no, okay. that was their opening weekend. Cheech and Chong would, was already in there. I would love to see what week two would be for Raiders of the Lost Ark. I wonder if it's like how things are now with with newer movies, how, oh, we don't know, and then word of mouth spreads, and then it just jumps up. Yeah. This is a PG movie. PG. Yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, one no, hour, it's not. <laughs> one hour and 55 minutes. Uh, wow, under two hours. It felt like it was longer than that. Yeah. Starring, I mean, we're talking five minutes, but. starring Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood, Paul Freeman as Belloc, Ronald Lacey as Tote, John Rhys-Davies as Sala, Denholm Elliott as Brody, and Alfred Molina, Doc Ock himself as Satipo. <laughs> Didn't even know that until I read it. I was like, how did I not notice that? This was his second movie ever. The first one nobody saw. Great. 
Yeah. Uh, according to IMB, this movie had really one tagline. What's your tagline for this movie? It's I mean, the return of the great adventure. That's the tagline. The return of the great adventure. Yeah, okay. because this was like a callback to the 50s and 60s serials that Lucas had grown up watching. Okay. Yeah, so the return of the great adventure. I love that tagline. I think it's appropriate for 1981 and what it is. I would yeah. not use this for Dial of Destiny coming up. Oh. I, I don't know if I want it. I do. Just the name like, alone has you upset. <laughs> it does. When I saw that, when it finally came out, it's like, really, the dial of destiny? I immediately thought of like, okay, what is this, Laura Croft? Right. That's what I thought. Um, do you remember seeing this for the first time? What did you think? Well, I can definitely say that I did not go to the theaters to see this because I wasn't born yet. You use I go. Uh, heck. Uh, my oldest sister wasn't even born yet. She was born in September of 81. Okay. Um, I think I remember seeing this maybe around middle school kind of time. I got, this was back when I moved. I used to live in California in elementary school. And then I moved back to Michigan. Yeah. Um, late elementary. And then obviously for the rest of my academic career, I feel like I saw this at my uncle Ray's house. Um, it's on my dad's side of the family because he was into the Star Wars, the Indiana Jones, all of those. And I remember like I felt like I saw it at his house with him. Uh, but that wasn't even the first Indiana Jones movie that I saw. What was the first one you uh, saw? I think the first one I saw was The Last Crusade. Well, that makes which, sense. By that time, you're eight, seven, six years old. So it was that maybe that's why it's my favorite. Now, I'm curious. Now, I'm just thinking this. What if the whole aliens rule? is with that if you like last crusade depending on which one you see first that one tends to be more of your favorite i think you've got a legitimate theory uh, on your hands sir now you have to test that theory with all of your friends uh well you don't count because that's all about i got <laughs> <laughs> so uh what about you did you see this when it came out you were already born i was two <laughs> and as we know, the terrible twos are not when you send a kid to the movie theater. Um, no, I did not see this in the theater. In fact, my first real exposure to this movie was, and I don't know if you remember this, but back in the 80s, we had these things called books on tape. Books on tape? Yes. Where was a, they gave you a movie, for instance, that they had in the in like, you know, a children's book. And there was a tape that came along with it, a cassette. And you yeah. played the cassette, and whenever, in some like case, you know, if R2D2 beeps, you turn the page, and it tells you the story of the movie with different actors voicing certain things here and there. I know that this, I had Raiders of the Lost Ark book on tape, and when I, back then, I was so good at these things, I would like memorize them, and then like, <laughs> just like randomly in grocery stores, just start doing the entire book on tape uh, with the voices because I was an entertainer. Um, so that was my first. And then when I finally saw the movie, it was on TV and we recorded it onto a VHS tape. And I know that we recorded it twice because I ran the first tape out. Oh, I loved this movie so much. Um, and I also, I wasn't allowed to see temple. So Indiana Jones was the only, uh, movie I could see. Yeah. Okay. They were the only ones that they were good. Like they, they, my parents knew Temple was a darker movie. Yeah. 
Temple might have been the second one that I saw, and it wasn't Raiders. Might have been. I think I went in reverse order. Now that I mentioned, you went last. And, Temple Raiders. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I could be wrong, but I remember. I even older teenage, maybe very young adult. Yeah. I still struggled to watch this movie because of how creepy it was. Was it the snakes? Yeah, that might've been part of it, but the whole like religious aspect of it freaked me out. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, if, if, if you're, if you grew up with religion and you know of the, I mean, everybody knows of the 10 commandments, this yeah. movie dives right into the lore. And I think that's like what's kind of creepy about it is because it is an ideology. Yeah. And it's like, well, based on your beliefs, is it true? Is it not true? Questioning all of that and then seeing it put onto film, like, oh, this is a real thing. Let's do the history behind it. Let's go onto the internet and look at that. Oh, crap. This is actually a thing. <laughs> oh, and then you go back into what you used to believe in. Oh, crap. Yeah. I mean, I was raised up, you know, Christian Catholic, but it wasn't like, I mean, I did Sunday school for a little bit, but it wasn't really pushed heavily on me, yeah. which is surprising because my mother, she went to a Catholic school, okay. all through grade school, um, and it was part of my family, but it was never really super pushed on us. Okay. Well, yeah. That's my background with it. Yeah. For me, I, I knew the Ten Commandments when I was six, seven years old. I just didn't understand all the other stuff. I thought that was, you know... At that point, they tell you one thing and you're like, well, that's real. So everything else must be real. Yeah. The only thing that I knew was just the big stories, the Ten Commandments, the, you know, Jesus and his stories, all just the big, big major ones, like right. all the little individual stories in the Bibles and whatnot. I was like, oh, I couldn't tell you anything. But no, this was one of them. And, you know, they did a couple movies based on the Ten Commandments, like the Ten Commandments. There, I hear that was a hit. I hear that was, that was about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's get into the making of this movie, Inception to Perception, where I dig shallowly into the internet to find out how this movie came to be. Don't get on the set, get ready to shoot, and then ask for rewrites. Studios do this crap all the time, and they wonder why they end up with a shit movie. Smoke and mirrors, guys. Welcome to the movie factory. Movie? You know, I hate the word movie. I don't make movies. I make films. Writing-wise, Lawrence Kasdan, Spielberg's recent discovery, was chosen to write the script. Kasdan had been writing as a professional screenwriter for only a month, but Lucas agreed to hire him after reading a script for Continental Divide in 81. In January of 78, Lucas, Kasdan, and Spielberg spent about nine hours a day over three to five days at Lucas's assistance house in Sherman Oaks, Los Angeles, developing Lucas's outline. Several ideas came from these discussions, including the boulder trap, the monkey in Cairo, Tote burning the medallion's imprint into his hand, and government agents locking the ark away. Kasdan realized Spielberg and Lucas had several set pieces in mind, but they were looking for someone else to do the hard work of piecing them together. <laughs> I mean, those are some pretty iconic scenes, and yeah, you don't take those away. Those are sweet scenes. Yeah, and this is where we get how Indiana came to be. Spielberg hated the name Indiana Smith. I believe it. Yeah. Hated it too. Believing you to remind audiences of the Steve McQueen character, Nevada Smith. All three men agreed to use Jones instead. Actors Clint Eastwood and Toshiro Mifun and the James Bond character were the basis of Jones's own. Lucas, right. 
Lucas wanted Jones to be a kung fu practitioner and a playboy. Funding his lifestyle with the spoils of his adventures, but Spielberg and Kasdan felt the character was complicated enough being an adventurer and alcoholic, or archaeologist. <laughs> Spielberg suggested making Jones an avid gambler or an alcoholic, but Lucas wanted Jones to be a role model who was honest and true and trusting. Both men felt it was important Jones be fallible, vulnerable, and as capable of comedic moments as well as serious ones. They intended him to be someone the audience could relate to and idolize. Lucas suggested Marion would have a romantic past at the age of 11 with the much older Jones. And Spielberg replied, uh, she had better be older. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know what? When you read the novelization, you realize it wasn't that much older. See, after hearing all this on what they wanted um, Indiana Jones to be, I think this is where they fell off the uh, train when they did Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and now the new one. Because I don't think the audience can relate to him. No. I think that he turns into, I mean, he might not be a gambler or an alcoholic, but he just has that demeanor that he's just too cocky. Yes. He's too cocky in the older ones, and that's where he it, that's where his character falls off. That's why I think the last two ones are so bad. And I don't know who had the influence of that, but in the first three, he is honest, true, and trusting, just like you say, but then after that, psh, that's where it goes downhill. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a fair assessment right there. Now, while Spielberg directed 1941, Kasdan used his office to write Raiders, taking inspiration from early 20th century serials and adventure films like Red River, Seven Samurai, and The Magnificent Seven. He wrote Jones as an anti-hero, an archaeologist reduced to grave robbing. Kasdan wanted a supporting cast with their own unique characteristics and believed it was important these characters had a memorable impact. He described how the hardest part of writing was explaining how Jones would fall into successive dangerous events and survive, and how he traveled between locations. And in August of 1978, approximately five months after, Kasdan completed his first draft. Spielberg described the draft as good, but too long. Kasdan and Lucas collaborated to trim and refine it. The script was a globe-spanning tale set in the United States, Egypt, Greece, and Nepal. Several elements were cut, including a journey to Shanghai that would lead to a minecart chase and Jones using a gong to shield himself from gunfire, later used in Temple of Doom. Oh, I'm glad they didn't go away from it completely. Yes. <laughs> to his frustration, much of Kasdan's love story between Jones and Marion was trimmed as were seen showing the mutual attraction between Marion and Belloc. That's a different movie now. Yeah. Uh, and the screenplay was completed in 1979, December. Lucas wanted to fund Raiders of the Lost Ark himself, but lacked the money. <laughs> so Lucasfilm offered the project to several Hollywood studios. They rejected it in part because of the proposed $20 million budget, but also because of the deal Lucas offered. He wanted the studio to provide the budget, have no creative input, and allow him to retain control of the licensing rights and any sequels. The studios considered this deal unacceptable, mainly because they just got burned by Star Wars. He was not gonna get the same deal twice. No. They were also hesitant because of Spielberg's involvement due to his having delivered a succession of films over schedule and over budget. His recent effort, 1941, was both over budget and a critical failure. However, Lucas refused to do it without Spielberg. I did hear that. And I also heard that even with Jaws, 
it was overscheduled and over budget. Oh yeah. Which was the reason why this was so fast paced because they didn't want to do all these extra cutscenes. And I think it was a quote from Spielberg says, I don't want to take 20 takes to have the, the main actress move her hairline or something like that. I want to go, 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 go. Which right. is exactly how this story is. So oh yeah. I, I see that. Yeah. Uh, Paramount Pictures president Michael Eisner comprised, compromised with Lucas agreeing to his deal in exchange for exclusive rights to any sequels and severe penalties for exceeding the schedule or budget. Lucas reportedly negotiated a salary between $1 and $4 million, plus a share of the gross profits, though a separate report stated he received only the net profits. Spielberg received up to $1.5 million as director and a share of the gross profits. Lucas wanted a relatively unknown actor willing to commit to a trilogy of films to play Indiana Jones. Those considered for the role included Bill Murray, Nick Nolte, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Tim Matheson, Nick Mancuso, Peter Coyote, Jack Nicholson, Jeff Bridges, John Shea, Sam Elliott, and Harry Hamlin. Sam Elliott? Whoa. I I couldn't imagine him. Uh, no, the the only be able to see his mouth. The only one out of that list I could see is Tim Matheson. If you don't know who Tim Matheson is, Tim Matheson. Did you ever see Animal House? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Never mind that. We'll move on. Uh, it's a comedy. Uh, yeah. Casting director Mike Fenton favored Jeff Bridges, uh, but Lucas's wife and frequent collaborator Marsha Lucas preferred Tom Selleck. I could see it. Now, there's actually screen tests. I've heard it. And if you, you can look them up online, you can see Tom Selleck as him, and you'd be like, you know what? He would have been good, too. He would have brought a lot more sex appeal. To Indiana Jones. I don't know. I don't know. Because Harrison Ford is he's a good looking he man. He did. He did. But it's how the lines were delivered. And I listened to it actually this morning. Yeah. Um, and how he delivered the lines. Um, oh, it was it was the lines to Marion in in the bar. Okay. And it was just like um when I heard Tom Selleck say those lines, it was like, Okay, Mr. Selleck, what do you need? What do you got? I felt almost intimidated. <laughs> You know, I felt very intimidated. Now with Harrison Ford, it was just like, uh, I mean, he has that bold voice, but it was almost, it was, it was blown off nonchalantly yeah. when he read it. Like, I really don't care. Let's just get over this. But how Selleck portrayed it as it was a little over the top. I don't even want to say over the top, but it was aggressive. Um, Aggressive. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It was very aggressive. And for to be him for to be even a teacher with that porn star mustache on it, <laughs> it would have been uh, the that, sex appeal would have shot through the roof, which yeah. is not what Indiana Jones is. I mean, he has the sex appeal, and I go over this later, but he doesn't even know he has it. <laughs> right. Right. It's it, it's not the it's not the age. It's the miles. Right. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. Uh, Selleck was contractually obligated to filming the television series Magnum P.I. If it were to be made into a full series, Lucas and Spielberg asked the show's studios, CBS, to release him 10 days early from his contract. Realizing Selleck was in demand, CBS greenlight Magnum P.I., forcing him to drop out and leaving the production with no lead actor only weeks before filming. The 1980 actor strike later put the show on hiatus for three months, which would have allowed Selleck to star as Jones. <laughs> CBS, <Wow>. you dicks. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that 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 is a very dick move. But you know, out of all those names that you mentioned, yeah, including Tom Selleck, 
Harrison Ford isn't even one of them. No, he's he not. He's like the last ditch effort to get somebody. And you know what? He was the last ditch effort to be Han Solo also. That's right. He was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sp- Spielberg said Ford was perfect for the role after seeing him in The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Kanzangian said Ford had always been considered but not cast because he was already a well-known actor. Lucas was concerned about seeming reliant on Ford by casting him in another film after Star Wars, and he also did not think he would commit to three films. However, Ford thought it would be a fun project and agreed to the deal. He negotiated a seven-figure salary, a percentage of the gross profits, and the option to rewrite his dialogue. That is so crucial. Yes. (laughs) That is huge, because I think that's where Harrison Ford becomes a genius. Yeah. And we also know Lucas isn't exactly great with dialogue. That's very true. Or so, romance. So here's Han Solo coming off of Star Wars where he had to read Lucas's lines. And then The Empire Strikes Back where uh, the director, Irvin Kirshner, allowed him to ad-lib at times some of Lucas's lines. And being that Empire was seen as the better movie. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, no, no. If Lucas is involved, I want to be able to make my own stuff up too. Yeah, and there was more Han Solo in Empire, too. Oh, yes. Uh, Ford undertook extensive exercise to enhance his physical or his physique and trained for several weeks under storm co- uh, coordinator Glenn Randall to use a bullwhip, becoming proficient enough to disarm the monkey man. That's, that was awesome. His wrist had to be rehabilitated to compensate for an old injury. Ford's interpretation of the character was an academic first and an adventurer second, a student athlete. Student comes first. Oh, oh. Yeah, we listening to that. <laughs> now for Jones's love interest, Marion Sp- uh, Spielberg wanted someone akin to early 20th century leading ladies like Irene Dunn, Barbara Stanwyck, and Anne Sheridan, who equaled their male, male counterparts. Lucas wanted Deborah Winger, but she was not interested. And Spielberg wanted his girlfriend, Amy Irving, but she was unavailable. They also considered Stephanie Zimbalist, Barbara Hershey, and Sean Young. Spielberg was aware of Karen Allen, from her performance in The Animal House You've Never Seen, mm-hmm. portraying an independent female character, and she impressed him with her professionalism during auditions for Raiders. One of the first things Spielberg asked Alan was, how well do you spit? And Alan developed a backstory for Marion that included her mother's death and her relationship with Jones when she was 15 or 16. But Spielberg said it belonged in a different movie. Kasdan named Marion after his grandmother-in-law and took Ravenwood from a Los Angeles street. Belloc was intended to be a sophisticated villain to counter the beer-drinking hero. Spielberg cast Freeman after seeing him in the docudrama Death of a Princess. Freeman's piercing eyes had captivated him. Ooh. Giancarlo Giannini and singer Jacques Dutronc were also considered. Danny DeVito was approached to play Sala. Oh, God, no. Sala was described as a skinny, five-foot-tall Egyptian like Gunga Din in Gunga Din. DeVito could not participate because of scheduling conflicts with his sitcom Taxi and because his agent wanted too much money. (laughs) So Reese Davies was cast based on his performance in the 80 miniseries Shogun. Uh, Spielberg asked him to play the character as a mix of his Shogun role and character John Falstaff. Ronald Lacey was cast as Tote because he reminded Spielberg of actor Peter Lorre. Klaus Kinski was offered the role but chose to appear in the horror film Venom because it offered more money. So it sounds like a lot of people said, I just want more money for this, not knowing how big this was going to be. Oh, God. Yeah, if you you can just get a percentage of 
hell, I'll take the net profits on this. Man, did you make out? It reminds me. I mean, that, I think that's. The, I want. I'm curious on if Harrison Ford got a similar deal like that with Star Wars. If he got a percentage of something for when no, he came, like, when he came like back. Taking, yeah, I, that's like taking a low salary, but you know what? I want some stock options. I mean, so. everybody, everybody mocks the George Lucas uh, selling to Disney, but George Lucas knows how to do a deal. <laughs> yeah, two billion dollars in cash and two billion dollar in stock option in 2015, knowing full well that the Marvel universe is about to blow up. <laughs> That guy has probably made an additional $10 billion off of all of that. He, he has had to have made more money off of Marvel than Star Wars. Oh, even better, Steve? In signing this deal, he pretty much knows that Disney could screw this all up. So not only is he going to get a lot richer, but he's also going to be elevated in the eyes of all the fans of I'm a god now, and I don't have to do anything. Yep. I mean, he's already they're already doing that right now with uh, how the prequels went, and he was the man behind all of those. Yeah, remember the new Disney ones. Remember I mean, how granted, much we, shit people gave the prequels, and then the sequel trilogy came out, and they were like, actually, the prequels aren't that bad. <laughs> don't realize how good something is until it's not there anymore. Right. Uh, and and just to, just to you know acknowledge Star Wars for a second, please watch these movies in order. Don't just watch them randomly. They're not independent pieces. Just saying. Four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine. Or one, two, three, four, five, six. I like that one better. Yes. Yeah, that works. <laughs> You'll notice I did not add Rogue One in there. Okay. Um, I, I agree. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into this movie. Let's talk about it. Let's go. Or she'll still be with him? Possibly, Marion's the least of your worries right now, believe me, Indy. What do you mean? Well, I mean that for nearly 3,000 years, man has been searching for the lost ark. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. It's like nothing you've ever gone after before. Oh, Marcus, what are you trying to do? Scare me? You sound like my mother. We've known each other for a long time. I don't believe in magic, a lot of superstitious hocus-pocus. I'm going after a find of incredible historical significance. You're talking about the boogeyman. Besides, you know what a cautious fellow I am. In the spring of 1936, an exploration party penetrates thick jungle on the South American continent. When the group's leader stops to examine map fragments, another of the group pulls a gun. The leader, hearing the click as the turncoat cocks the pistol's hammer, pulls out a bullwhip and disarms the man, sending him fleeing back through the jungle. The man who expertly wields the bullwhip is Dr. Henry Indiana Jones Jr., an archeologist with a reputation for heavy-handed field work that takes them around the globe in search of ancient treasures. Dr. Jones. <laughs> I love that line. Uh, first off, let's yeah. just talk about the introduction, and I'm talking about the introduction, introduction, going from Paramount Pictures to a mountain. How cool was that transition? It's cool because they've done it in, I think they do it in Temple of Doom also. Yeah, I think that's almost a common, th I think it's a theme in Indiana Jones. Or, well, yeah, uh, I don't know if they did same. in, I didn't know what they do in Crystal Skull. I don't know if they did it there. That's a shame if they didn't. That's a nice little thing that they got going. I mean, yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen 
anything like that in movies prior to what I saw. Um, and I also like that you're just thrown into a hunt. Yeah. You know he's out there finding something, but what really makes this scene great is the music. And I'm gonna you're gonna hear me again. I've done it through, you know, the Infinity Saga is the music. I mean, come on, it's John Williams. I'm gonna break your heart later. I don't like you right now. No, no, no. Not based on my opinion. Because I oh. <laughs> this is one of those soundtracks where when you hear the first two notes, you know exactly what it is, and you can't stop humming it until you finish. I think that's something to be said. Yeah. But um, I also like how they introduce Indy. All you see is an outfit. You don't see his face yet. And I think that's what makes his outfit so iconic. That's what you, as an audience member, that's what you see first. And, you know, if you see anybody in the Indiana Jones costume, I mean, it's the the hat, the leather coat, the pants. Yeah. You just know that's him without even looking at his face. And I think this does it beautifully. Well, also, the fedora was never a outdoorsy hat. If you're going to go exploring, you usually wore a pith helmet back then. Is that a fedora? That's a fedora he's wearing. He no made the way. fedora a adventuring hat. That is not a fedora. Yes, is it, it is. All right. I got to... Okay, all I get is hat. What kind of hat does Indiana Jones wear? It's a fedora. Brown fedora style hat. Son of a nutcracker. <laughs> he made the fedora an outdoor hat. <laughs> You're going to go exploring? You better grab your fedora. <laughs> that was always a ritzy, classy hat. Exactly. Uh, God, that's what the, that's like something you'd see in like Seattle on a rainy day at a Starbucks. Right. It's a hipster hat. Right. Oh, he made it cool. Well, it, uh, it becomes so cool that it becomes a problem in Temple of Doom. Because in Temple of Doom, you can't have him dress differently for his adventure. He's the leather hat. The leather jacket, the hat, the pants and they try to make the shirt work by using his tuxedo shirt that he's wearing at Lao Che's event that it's gotten so dirty, it's that off-color brown now. Yeah. See, but you can still see the frills on it. Mm. And it makes All you wonder- I know is that when he doesn't have that hat, he's not Indiana yet. And no. so many times throughout this series where it's just like, you know what? He's shirtless like in the Temple of Doom, but he's got the hat on. Yes. Or he's, even at the end of this movie, where he's done a nice, I mean, a crisp suit, but he's got the hat on. <laughs> and you know what? At this point, we just think he's an explorer. We have no idea he's an archaeologist. Correct. Yeah. And also, let's bring this up. The bullwhip. This is really the first time we've seen it used as a weapon in a mainstream movie. Yeah, he doesn't really use, I mean, he uses a gun, but, you know, he'd rather have his bullwhip. It's like, it's like a lightsaber. Right. And it makes oh. you go, gosh, why a bullwhip? And then you watch two movies later, how he got the bullwhip. I can't think of it off the top of my head. This is awesome. It's from Last Crusade, your favorite movie. I'm just, I can't think of it off the top of my head. As a now child, just... he's on the train. He falls in the lion cage. And to push the lion back, he grabs a bullwhip off of the wall Slaps at the and line cut, and he cuts himself right there, which is where he gets the scar. But didn't he? He has that scar in real life, though, doesn't he? Yeah, they they made it part of the story. They made it okay, made it part of the story, which yeah. I always thought was cool. 
Uh, Indy and his remaining com companion, Sapito, enter a dank, oppressively vast cave where a competitor of his, Forrestal, disappeared. Inside the cave are several traps rigged by the ancient people who had a small, valuable statue there. One of the traps is found to have impaled Forrestal. Jones finds the antechamber chamber where the statue sits atop a pedestal and is protected by an elaborate system of pressure-sensitive stones that release deadly darts from the surrounding walls. Jones avoids the booby-trapped stones and makes it to the idol. He very deftly replaces the idol with a bag of sand, judging the weight of the treasure by sight. Uh-oh. However, the weight is not precise. The pedestal sinks and the chamber begins to collapse. Jones runs narrowly avoiding the darts. When he arrives at a bottomless pit he and Sapito had crossed earlier using Jones's bullwhip, Sapito crosses safely but refuses to give Jones his whip unless he gives him the idol. Throw me this whip, throw me the idol, throw me the whip, throw me the idol. Indy throws him the idol, but Sapito drops the whip and runs off. Jones manages to jump across and pull himself up and escape under the stone door that closes. He finds Sapito dead, killed by the same trap that killed Forrestal. Jones retrieves the idol and must once again flee while a large boulder rushes toward him. He leaps out of the cave's entrance just as the boulder hits, sealing it. Okay. He obviously doesn't know how heavy the idol is because he screws up the trap. Uh, but he fills it with sand and then pours some of it out after looking at the idol. How would you be able to gauge how heavy that idol is? I mean, what if he didn't take some of the sand out? It would have worked? The world may never know. I mean... I mean, what's the point of taking the sand out? We already knew there was sand in there. Now, there was something magical that was supposed to happen with this idol, and that is at one point in the script, it says that everywhere Indy goes in the chamber... The eyes of the idol follow him. And they took it out because it would be too expensive to do. Well, yeah, I mean, $20 million. Yeah. But no, that's fine. That would have been really creepy. Um, I mean, this is the famous iconic scene. Oh, yeah. It's done, it's done so well with him knowing the booby traps stay out of the light. Um, and it wasn't until sitting here doing this podcast right now Again, that I realized that this was Alfred Molina. It's Doc Ock. It's, I was just like, how did I not know this before? And I felt like every time I watched this, like, this I, this guy seems familiar, but I just couldn't even put on it. <laughs> even now, after doing all the what we've done, I, it's just a short, short role that he has. Like I said, it was his second role. Yeah. But he does a great job. Exactly. He plays nefarious at the end of his role. Yeah. Um, adios. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, okay. Uh, let's let let's let's get into my little eight-legged friends. Okay, so the spiders. Yeah. I mean, there's two things that I hate as well. I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for you, but I hate spiders, and I hate snakes. Yes. But when I watch this scene, <laughs> I just want to know what's going through your head. So, if I was cast in this movie, and they told me they were going to put around. 20 tarantulas on my back. I would have three questions. Number one, did my agent know about this scene? Because they're not looking out for my interest because they know I don't like spiders. Number two, am I going to get paid extra for this scene? And number three, do they need to be tarantulas? Why not butterflies? You know, they could, as a swarm, that could be frustrating and frightening also. The butterflies would have got caught in the webs of the spiders. Yes. Yeah. So, no, I. every time I see this scene, 
when Sapito turns around and you see oh. all of them, <laughs> I'm just like, how, how do you stay that still? I'm cringing just thinking about it. Right. Uh, and also today that probably all would have all been CGI because PETA would have stepped in saying, oh, you can't harm any of these. If you hit them off with the whip, unfortunately they may get hurt on the way down. So this would be CGI. Those are actual tarantulas. Oh, I believe it. And it, you know, it's even like, I don't know if they just left it in the movie, but as soon as um, he turns around, you see all those tarantulas, you see the silhouette of Indiana Jones just kind of turn away for a second. Like, holy crap. <laughs> I got to touch these things. And then he just says, just suck it up and do it. And just brushes them off like that. Like they're so nonchalant, especially, I mean, Alfred Molina. I, this guy wasn't paid enough for this scene. No, nope. especially the one that crawls across oh. his chest and over his shoulder. And I'm just like, oh God, just don't like, you have to stay still. Yeah. It's like, I'm pretty sure it's like, okay, we just, Alfred, we just need you to do this scene for today. Take the rest of the day off. <laughs> yeah. Um, um Go ahead. But I was just, I was going to, this kind of leads into like, not only all this, you know, the animals that they used in here, but just all of the practical effects, not facts, <laughs> all the practical effects and the props that they use yeah. um, at the time and the effort that went into building all of these things. It just looks so good. Oh yeah. As oh. a kid, it was very tough for me to watch all these films because of how good the practical effects were. And there's multiple scenes today that just still get me. And I just, it, 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 I can't wrap my head around it. This is from 1981 and this is today. Yep. And they still look amazing. Practical effects never age unless it's like something that's beyond natural environment. You know, the projection stuff in this, that's a special effect that, that hasn't aged well. The projection screen in the background of certain scenes, yeah. but practically speaking, we need to cover them with spiders. Okay, let's call a spider wrangler and get 20 <laughs> spiders and we'll have them place them on him one at a time. I mean, even the snakes, the number of snakes they lost in that scene alone. Yeah. We'll get to that later on. Uh, but this leads into another scene, which is also practical effects, the boulder scene. It, probably the yeah. only thing that could get me to run through spider webs is that boulder. You know, I was thinking about this and I paid very attention close attention to this and then it's like as soon as that ball runs down there's like a big gaping hole behind it and at first i'm thinking well why don't you just take a couple steps back and there goes the boulder you right finally evaded it but then i'm like but then he probably can't get out it's blocking the door then blocking the door so it's like okay now i see why you need to run away from the boulder yes um Okay, seemingly safe, Indy is cornered by the Jovitos, the local tribe who are led by Dr. Rene Belloc, an arrogant French archaeologist who is a longtime rival and enemy of Indy's. Indy hands Belloc his pistol and the idol. When Belloc raises the idol and the Jovitos bow, Indy flees and is rescued by Jock flying a seaplane. Though Indy, an admitted o o snake, not liker, isn't please. <laughs> I'm going to try this. A. Ophidiophobe uh, isn't pleased to find Jock's pet snake Reggie in the cockpit with him. Okay, we'll start with Belloc. Belloc's a dick. And even the color scheme shows you how opposite these two guys are. Uh, he's wearing clean white clothes. Indy's in this dirty brown clothes. They are meant to be visually opposites from the get-go. 
Oh, I mean, when you were reading the Inception of Perception and talked about when they hired him, how his eyes captivated him. There's so many scenes where it's like, yes, that totally makes sense. And he, there's one. Oh, I think it's this scene. One of the best villain laughs as it's echoing through the jungle. <laughs> and I was just like, this guy, he is clearly the bad guy in this movie. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I know you do a villain's analysis for some of the movies. I'm wondering if you have one for this one. Um, Certainly a possibility. Yeah. Uh, I would I would go so far to say this is a very underrated villain in movie history. Oh, oh I totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it gets justice. Um, what's also great about all this is it is an adventure movie. It is action, but the, there is some comedy placed in there. Yeah. And it's exactly when he's running through and says, shock, shock, start the plane. <laughs> he's like, do I stop fishing? Do I keep going? Ah, uh, screw it. Let's just go. But then you, you see know? the army behind him. <laughs> yes, the army behind him. And even when he jumps in the plane, he goes, there's a big snake. Oh, have a little backbone, will you? <laughs> you know, and Indy, I am a hundred billion percent behind you. I don't like snakes. And living down here in Florida. Oh, yeah. I see a little black racer and I'm like, fight or flight kicks in. <laughs> Yeah, you don't freeze. You either do one or the other. <laughs> and I mean, this isn't just a little snake that's in him. It's like a it's boa. A, it's a massive python. Yeah. Sitting and crawling on your lap and you can't go anywhere. It's like you can just get out of the cockpit. You're already in the air. Exactly. Like, it, like if uh, it was to start to wrap itself around Indy, what are you going to do? You're in the air. I don't know. I don't know. But it makes me think. What would you rather have? A bunch of snakes or a bunch of spiders? Well, I'm I'm going to not answer that. <laughs> but here's my question. Are we to assume that Indy flew there on that plane? Flew with them, yeah. Okay. So, so wouldn't you have noticed the snake in the in the in the plane? It's a two-seater. Unless he was with the other one. Okay. Well, back stateside, Indy teaches an archaeology class and is still upset over the loss of the statue, which he surmises Belloc is taking the Marrakesh to sell on the black market. Indy has found pieces he will he feels will pay for a trip to Marrakesh to find Belloc, but Indy's friend Marcus Brody dashes that hope by informing him that two army intelligence officers want to talk to him about Abner Ravenwood, his former teacher, who was his friend until Indy broke up with his daughter Marion. I do think it's a really funny touch that his class is primarily young women who all are in love with their professor. <laughs> yeah. And again, I was listening to this podcast earlier on, on Raiders and it was, uh, they did the statistics of back then of how many women would be in college at this time. And it was like one, they couldn't get definitive numbers cause it was such a long time ago, but it was just like 15% should of people should like think that women should live, work outside of the household. Yeah. But this class is like 70% women. <laughs> and I think it's, I think it's a great touch. I think it involves, evolves his character even more. Yeah. Because he's like this adventure, this bad boy. And now he's this professor, this, this straight up nerd. <laughs> and this is where you kind of gets a little bit of that sex appeal. Well, yeah. And you have the one girl in the front row who closes her eyes and says, love you across their eyelids. Yeah. <laughs> And that was like one thing that I think, I don't know, one of the executive producers of one of the people who did this, they wanted to put that in there. 
And Spielberg was like, I love it. Let's do it. You mm. know? And it was, it wasn't really in the script per se. It was something that they just wanted to include. Oh yeah. So I uh, it was great. <clears throat> Uh, and we also get the introduction of Marcus Brody, the man who got lost in his own museum. <laughs> I've always liked Marcus. I, you know what? Marcus isn't a punchline in this movie. That Marcus plays a serious, and you get the idea just based off of this small role here that he is Indy's equal, probably has a little bit more money than Indy, uh, and uh, is a very bright man. I think they could be easily one and the same. He just decided to go towards the more business museum route in his life. Yeah. And I think in the conversation that you, they have at his house, he almost a little bit, re, I don't want to say regrets that decision, but you can see that's what a divide is. Like he just says, I wish I was going out there with you. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny because it makes me, when we get to Last Crusade, I'm going to question how they wrote Marcus Brody because Marcus Brody would have never gone looking at all. He would have sent somebody else because at that point, he's obviously you know, 10 years older his days of adventuring are long behind him or any chance of doing that. He should have never been going on that crusade with them. I mean, unless he thinks he's the Rolling Stones and you just got one more farewell tour. Well, Marcus never had a farewell tour. Marcus is, Marcus is good in his museum. And yeah, the army officers are concerned because they've intercepted a German cable concerning a mammoth archaeological dig in the Egyptian desert not far from Cairo. When they read the cable, Indy and Marcus realized the Nazis have discovered Tanis, an ancient city long since buried in a gigantic sandstorm in 980 BC, and the possible burial site of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was built by ancient Hebrews who, to hold the stone tablets on which Moses inscribed the Ten Commandments. Indy quickly explains to them that the need for an ob of an object mentioned in the communique, the headpiece to the Staff of Ra, which will reveal the location of the Ark at the Nazi excavation. The army men are impressed by Indy's and Marcus's knowledge of the Ark, but Indy tells them the man most qualified is Ravenwood, who has been living somewhere in Asia for several years. When Indy shows the agents a picture of the Ark, it depicts it using unimaginable destructive power. Marcus also says very gravely that in any army that carries the Ark into battle is invincible. And because I know how much you love music, I'm going to bring it up. This is another fantastic scene, and the way the Williams music sounds so spooky... Uh, mm -hmm. when they're talking about the arc, it's on another level. Oh yeah. It's again, they're bringing in that religious aspect of it. And then when you see the picture of it going through, I mean, yeah, you see a picture, but you could just use your imagination of what is actually going on in that picture. When they have the arc open and it says, well, what is this lightning fire wrath of God stuff? Yeah. You know, it's, it's almost sounds like he kind of believes it, but yeah. It's well, a little, it's funny you say that because I do love how Indiana Jones is basically Han Solo in the 1930s. It is the same character because Han Solo doesn't believe in any of that mumbo jumbo force stuff either, mm -hmm. which yep. is odd because if Temple of Doom is supposed to have taken place before Raiders, he's literally gone face to face with magic and voodoo and all that jazz. He should completely believe in this magical stuff. I mean, he was brainwashed in that. But that's the thing is, he should yeah, believe in it. Up. He watched a guy get his heart pulled out of his chest. It could happen. You, you shut your mouth. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I, I can see the bleed of Han Solo and Indiana Jones, but yeah. I mean, I do see some of the differences, which is, I think this is where the writing of Harrison Ford kind of came in. Because I think in this movie, that I think that was one of his concerns is, and also probably Spielberg and Lucas's concerns is, okay, I got this 
guy already for as Han Solo. I don't want to put him in another people and just say, hey, look, that's Han Solo. Um, Indiana, he's smart. He's very, very book smart. Yeah. Han, he's old, he's the opposite. He's the street smart. You know, um, Han is a bad boy. Indiana kind of is, but he's got that double life adventure bad boy, and then he can go to a nerd. Um, I'm glad there's slight differences, but at no point um, do I see Han on the screen. I believe that is 100% that is Indiana Jones. Okay. No, no, I'm saying like the basis of the character or some of those things, but you got some good points there. I would say this, and I'm, I'm going to do Hot Take Central right now. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Han Solo's reputation of being a badass, I don't know where it comes from. At what I point think- in Star Wars was he a badass? Uh, maybe that is... He was a coward in Star Wars. And I think he covers that up with his attitude. That's it. It's the charisma that he has. But yeah. there's nothing badass about Han Solo in that first movie. I mean, he did do the Kessel Run. In, in less than 10 parsecs? Less than 10 parsecs. Less than the 12 parsecs. 12 parsecs. I couldn't remember the number, see? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he had a good feeling about it. Okay. Well, Indy flies to Nepal, followed by a Nazi agent, Tote, to speak to Marion Ravenwood, who runs a restaurant and bar and who can outdrink anyone because he needs the headpiece to the staff of Ra. Marion, still bitter over their breakup, nonetheless accepts when Indy offers her $3,000 and the promise of more when they return stateside. She is cryptic about the headpiece, and after Indy leaves, she reveals that she'd been wearing the headpiece on a chain around her neck. She looks at it over thoughtfully and places it on a small wooden sculpture on the table. Steve, how did he know to fly to Nepal? Uh, unless this is where the FBI told him it's where he needed to go. Oh, okay, okay. Yo, he did work with the U.S. agents. They know everything, right? They, I mean, they got their fingers uh, in everything. I'd like to think so. Uh, we get the red line showing the travel. This is another requirement in these movies. You got to have that. It's great. I love how they showed it. It's just a different and unique style. Absolutely. And that being said, it'd be nice if they used maps that were updated for the time it was in. <laughs> well, explain. What did you say that was different? Well, when the map showing the flight path of Indiana Jones' plane journey to Nepal is displayed, the Himalayan state of Sikkim, located between Nepal and Bhutan, is shown as being part of India, when in actuality, Sikkim didn't join India until 1975. The map also displays Thailand which was also actually called Siam until 1949. If you're gonna do a history piece, you better get the history right, man. I mean, I love how they showed the travel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I mean, I I didn't didn't notice that. I I guess my eyes just aren't there yet. I'm not saying you're wrong. You're 100% right. No, Um, if this was North America, everybody would have pointed this out, but this is Asia. We don't really study a whole lot of Asian history. We don't understand how maps work. I mean, up until this point right now, 99% of our listeners are going, huh? Yeah, exactly. And they're probably still struggling to think about it because I'm still struggling to think about it. Yeah. Um, But one of the things I thought of during this is, is how does Indy not notice the Nazi? I mean, they stop four times. I mean, he's not sleeping the entire time. I mean, how long is this flight? A day, maybe? I don't know. I, maybe they switch planes? Who knows? But how do you guys not notice the guy dressed up as a Nazi? I mean, he's not like he's undercover or anything. How do you not notice him? Well, don't he's, tell me that magazine covers up his, him the entire time. Let me just I mean, say that. Go through so many pages. Indy is not a spy. 
He's an adventurer. He's a an, an, an archaeologist. He's not tested in spycraft and seeing tales and stuff like that. So you're telling me the average Joe, no pun intended, okay, you would not notice the same guy dressed up. I mean, it's not like there's a whole lot of people on this plane. Right, but it looked like it, it, like, the entire time. It had four connections, right? I think so, yeah. Okay, so maybe he did recognize them, and maybe on one of the connections, they were like, oh, are you going to Nepal also? Yeah, me too. Oh, we got two more connections. Okay, well, mm. and nothing. German ended. Nazi? <laughs> well, maybe he used an American accent and just disguised it. Love to hear that guy's American accent. Yeah, I, I love how you have a reason for that, but not a reason that they know Ravenwood is somewhere in Asia, and he happens to know the exact bar that Marion is at. <laughs> Which is oh, in the, the middle of a snowstorm. <laughs> the only bar in Nepal. The, the only bar in Nepal. That's what it is. It's Nepal's <laughs> bar. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the drinking contest? That's going to come back later on. Marion can knock him back. Now, for years, I thought that her opponent was a rotund old woman. Really? Oh, I could see it. I kind of, yeah. I thought I it was. And it wasn't until later I saw it was a male that played it. I was like, okay. I love this beginning scene because it really introduces that she can handle her own shit. Oh yeah. And she isn't one to be pushed around. And you as an audience, when you first meet her, you need to have that mentality about her. She's respected there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always saw her as Indy's equal uh, on the screen. And it was an equal that was written subtly enough to understand it and not just throw it in your face that she is an equal. Like, yeah. it's a like, it's like what I've always said about people that, you know, always say that they're cool. If you have to say it, you're not, Yep. you know, or you have integrity. If you have to say it over and over again, you probably don't have it. That's very true. It's going to come back to haunt you. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, also, how old exactly was Marion when Indy fooled around with her the first time around? She says, I was a child. I was in love. Now, the script says that Marion's age in Raiders is 25 years old, making her around 15 at the time of the affair with a 27-year-old Indiana Jones. With the release of Indiana Jones, The Ultimate Guide in 2008, this was changed when Marion's birth year was revealed to be 1909, making her about 27 at the time of Raiders, which means that she is another two years older. So 17, we can accept that. I mean, I can, but why not just go to the legal age of 18 then? Well, maybe that was a little too much. Either way, it's... Who knows what the age was in 1930-something? I thought, didn't she say she was supposed to be was she originally 11 years old? That's what she, her backstory was, Ugh. that she wrote for herself. And then the script said, no, no, she's probably around 15. Oh, Indiana, you dirtbag. You dirtbag, like... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they don't go into, I mean, in, in that whole conversation, they don't go into the detail of why, she, I mean, she was in love. I mean, but I also know during that conversation, I mean, he comes off as a dirtbag addict because he doesn't really ever apologize for what he does. Nope. You know, he just says, he kind of just is annoyed and just wants to get over it. So, uh, you you know what you were doing? Yeah. Like, geez, it, in fact, he only apologizes when he finds out that her father passed away. Sorry. Uh, you're sorry. Everybody's sorry. Yeah, I guess so. 
Yeah, he's a dick. Yeah. Uh, also, she's walking around with that big ass headpiece on a necklace under her shirt all the whole time. Yeah, you, know, you don't even pay attention to it until it's revealed. And even now, I've seen that thing come out of her shirt. Thought I'd say that. Um, so many times, and I don't. I, I never notice it. Yeah. Uh, Tote and several Sherpa heavies enter the bar and hold Marion hostage with Tote ready to torture her for the headpiece. Indy returns and a firefight erupts during which the fireplace is dislodged and the building begins to burning down. Tote finds the headpiece, but when he grabs it, he's badly burned, leaving an image of one side of the headpiece branded on his hand. He jumps out a window, trying to cool his hand in the snow and is never really seen again for some reason. Outside the burning tavern, Marion tells Indy that she's his partner in the venture until he can pay her. Okay. How do you feel about Tote? Well, I'm thinking about this. Whoever they, the guy they hired to play him, is, that, that, it was genius. Absolutely. This guy took German, Nazi, and he studied it. He was full into it. And that's a tough, it's a tough thing to do because you know immediately you're going to be hated. Yeah. And he, he embraces it and he does, he plays that, Nazi Germany guy very well to the point where he's in it and how he talks and how he's acting it where he's acting nice but then you know what okay you're not gonna do it my way night and then all of a sudden hell breaks loose yeah when so he I when, like to when he holds the uh, the poker up to her face like that's burned in my brain that image right there yeah, and he's profusely sweating all the time. <laughs> yes, he is. In this movie. It's it, like, it looks colder than hell in that place. <laughs> yes. I guess when you go from the cold environment to inside warm, you tend to sweat. But, I mean, he's wearing a full, you know, suit and hat all the time. Yeah. Uh, we get the bar fight, which is another great scene. I love the way that the camera never does the same shot twice in this entire fight. It just keeps all the action fresh all the way yeah. through. And it's all over the place. This Absolutely, is how a bar fight should be. Well, I guess more like a gunfight. This just this is a straight Western bar shootout. Yeah, that's how I felt it was. Now you'll notice he has two guns. Indeed, he has the six shooter that he throws into a suitcase. And after, at one point, he sh when he starts shooting initially, he runs out of bullets. And then it looks like he's hiding behind a door frame, going into his thing to get more bullets. But he actually gets out a pistol. From his holster? Uh, yeah, he has a second one, oh, and that's okay. what he uses the that. entire time in the movie after that. Oh, I guess I missed it. I thought, I just, I would have assumed that he would have got it off one of those guys or something. I don't know. And was, was Tote grabbing the metal medallion and melting his hand? Was that foreshadowing about what's going to happen later? Oh, that had to have been. <laughs> <laughs> Where did Tote go afterwards, though? Uh, well, last thing you see is him putting his hand in the snow. And then what, he went home? He... <laughs> he disappeared. <laughs> he just shows up. He's one of those. The plot like needed him to go away. <laughs> I guess so. Okay. Well, the two fly to Egypt uh, to see Indy's pal Salah, one of the country's most successful excavators who is working on the Nazi site and who reveals that the Nazis are aided by a French archaeologist named Beloche. <laughs> I love that line. Oh. Belloc. <laughs> <laughs> Though the dig has uncovered much of Tannis, Indy knows that they'll never find the Ark's location without the headpiece. Salah says he knows a man who can read the ancient inscriptions that give him the precise measurements of the staff. And here's more map problems, Steve. The map again is outdated. 
because there's a lot of things that are a problem in this. Um, but I'm not going to go into the specifics just to say that map ain't, ain't right. Well, I, I, I was going to say now I'm going to pay attention to it in the other movies. <laughs> right. Maybe that maybe that's just a thing now. Well, I think it was let's just grab a map and we'll show the line not knowing that, oh, wait, this takes place in the 1930s. Well, again, like you said, 99% of our viewers won't not realize that till now. Right. So they're playing on the ignorance of the audience. Right. Uh, Sala is another great character in this movie. Right now, the side characters are killing it. They're all great. Yes, they are. Brody, Marion, Sala. They're not over the top, and they feel like real people. Oh, yeah, because he's there with his family. You see the great, you know, he he, he prizes where he lives. He says, Cairo, you know, and he's <laughs> on top. He looks like he does very well for himself. Yeah. Yes. Well, he's the best excavator in Egypt. You know, and yeah. uh, there's a great I love the conversation he has, which is Salah says, Indy, there's something that troubles me. And then he goes, what is it? He goes, the Ark, if it is there at tennis then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. Death has always surrounded it. It is not of this earth. I love that because that right there is a full-in buy-in by an equal of indies that this is not just supernatural. This is real. Yeah, this is a com this conversation just gave me more insight to how dangerous this journey or how dangerous this artifact really is. Yeah. Uh, later, while shopping at a Cairo bazaar, Indy and Marion are attacked by sword-wielding Arabs working for Nazi agents. Indy fights them off, but in the confusion, Marion is trapped in a large basket and taken by two of the terrorists. The effort to track her down is held up by a man brandishing a sword in intimidating fashion. The swordsman is casually shot down in short order by a thoroughly unimpressed Indy. Soon, Indy spots a basket carried to a trunk filled with explosives and is fired on by a submachine gun wielding assailant. His Nazi commander orders the Arabs to take off, but Indy shoots them and the truck crashes, exploding and destroying the basket Marion was hiding in. Uh, before this, though, we get the monkey. You know what? I applaud the monkey trailer. Uh, if anything, all the animal trailers in this film, the, the gods were in their favor with how these animals acted. Yes. Um, so, no, I, the, the monkey is a great little addition to it. So, yeah. I, I do have something to say about this scene because, and I, and I kind of feel bad. So, at this, right when the action starts. Yes. That's where my wife comes in. Uh oh. And I go, so do you want to watch this? And she's like, yeah, I'll listen to it. You know, it's been a while since I've seen it. And I bought this device recently for my TV so that I can hook up two sets of headphones. Okay. Well, in the process, while I'm doing all this, the movie's playing, and I don't finally get everything connected. All of a sudden, I see the explosion of the tank, and I'm like, oh, I missed everything, including the sword-wielding guy, and then Indy just shoots him. I was like, Step I didn't in want to rewind office. it. Why? Because you're fucking fired. <laughs> But I did hear something very interesting about this scene is that the guy who did all the sword wielding, yeah, he trained for like three months for <laughs> all of that action only to be dismantled in mere seconds. <laughs> well, dysentery is a fickle bitch. <laughs> yeah, the story behind this is that the entire crew got sick with dysentery and the flu. And when you see Indy in the scene, 
he's not feeling well in real life. And so it was Harrison Ford's idea. Can't we just shoot him? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like they had done several takes and then that was like the eighth or ninth take where he was like, forget it. And he just pulls the gun out and does the shoot. And Spielberg was like, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah, because I did hear everybody got sick except Spielberg. Right. Because he was the only one bringing his own food over. <laughs> uh, okay, there's some highlights in the set piece. We get Marion with the frying pan. That's great. Yeah, it's it's very cartoony and fun. It's uh Marion is fun in general. She 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 is. Uh Marion hides in a basket and the monkey rats are out. That damn monkey. Oh, I'm telling you. Come but this on, the act. This scene does bother me though, because when the monkey lands on top, she they start running down the corridor towards the baskets and she lifts the head up of the basket to knock the monkey off, but they can clearly see she's in the basket. It's an editing problem. Okay. Uh, I don't know, I have nothing. I, I mean, I agree with you. I guess I didn't even notice it. Then again, I missed that part of the film when I was watching it, so. Uh, Indies fight choreography. I, I did an improv class about 30 years ago uh, or 20 years ago where they, they showed you how to do impersonations of actors who are action actors. And one thing they told you was like, when it comes to Indiana Jones, every single time he does a kick or a punch, in order to impersonate him, you have to do the wind up first. So for instance, if you're gonna punch like Indy, you can't just be like that. It's like that. Yeah. And every single thing that he does has an action like that beforehand. And when he's about to jump, he always leans back and then jumps. So that's to work on the timing of everything. Uh, it's his character. That's what he decided um, to make his character do. Yeah, because I will say that there's like a lot of significant punches and elbows are thrown that there is a large gap in between them actually hitting his side. It was, it, it was very noticeable. Granted, everybody, my eyes have changed since doing these podcasts. Dip, um, dip, but dip, yeah. it's pretty noticeable. Uh, boom goes the truck. Marion's dead. <sighs> Every time I see this, I wonder how on earth they pulled that off because it was clear she was in the truck. Yeah, they pulled the old switcheroo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Disconsolate over losing Marion, Indy drowns his sorrows in alcohol at a nearby tavern, but is met by more Nazi agents who escort him to a table where he finds Belloc, who gleefully talks about finding the Ark. Indy, no longer caring about whether he lives or dies, reaches for his sidearm as Arabs inside pull rifles, only to see Salah's large brood of children rush in, surround Indy, and escort him out. Uh, in this movie, Anytime two characters are sitting down to have a conversation, it's always intriguing information. I don't feel like my time is ever wasted in this movie. No, I, I felt like this was the longest single shot in the whole film. And I think I remember that it was like a minute or so long. It does feel like that. Yeah. Everything else is just all over the place. And this I mean, for the right time. I mean, you're, you're really learning about their relationship and their motivations for not only the Ark of the Covenant, but for archaeology in general. You, and what these two actually very do. Yeah. And this is really interesting because everything Belloc says is true. Mm -hmm. And you can get behind someone who thinks that way, but his methods are the problem. But his yes. methods also yield results. Yes. Uh, he has the one line, look at this, it's worthless. $10 from a vendor in the street. But I take it, I bury it in the sand for a thousand years, it becomes priceless, like the Ark. 
you know, I could almost make the comparison between these two guys as two other uh, hero and anti and uh, villains that we've done in the past, Tony Stark and Justin Hammer. Um, no, because Justin Hammer was never successful. <laughs> well, he had an empire, Hammer Technologies. Yeah, that according to Tony Stark was still 15 years behind the Koreans, the Soviets, and all that. Um, all right, okay. I was just trying to get a little positive influence <laughs> on Justin Hammer here, but you want to knock me down? That's just fine. I look. Uh, I think you want to use inclusion <laughs> as a part of your argument here. Uh, I mean, uh, another thing I want to touch on is with this conversation. Yeah, is you're right. They are both the, when he says we're the same people. Which he's 100% right. They both want to go after an artifact. They both want to take it, and they both want to sell it. Yep. It's just to who is the different person. But does it really matter? One's going to museum, and the other one's going to what? A private person or something like that? Probably a private cell. Hitler. Yeah. Either way, it will both be cherished. Yes. Um. Yeah, the line, this, is, this might be my favorite line in the movie. You and I are very much alike. Archaeology is our religion, yet we have both fallen from the pure faith. Our methods have not differed as much as you pretend. I am but a shadowy reflection of you. It would only take a nudge to make you like me, to push you out of the light. How is that not Star Wars right there? Right. And Indy goes, now you're getting nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's very light versus dark side. Yeah. Uh, Sala takes Indy to see the shaman who is reading the headpieces inscriptions after both men have learned that Belloc and his vermic aide, Colonel Dietrich, have obtained a copy of the headpiece. Neither man is aware that it is a duplicate traced from Tote's burned hand. The shaman reveals two critical facts. First, that the headpiece gives the precise height of the Staff of Ra. And second, that the staff the Nazis used was too long because the other side of the headpiece instructs to subtract from the height that was stated on the front side. So their excavation is over a mile away from the Ark's actual burial site, which is known as the Well of Souls. <laughs> They're digging like in the that? wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> they both like jumped out and are so giddy. <laughs> giddy about it. Um yeah, and I, this is something that I, I, I mentioned because Lucas was very good about doing this in the Star Wars and indie movies, um, and it's where Disney has since failed a little bit, and that's the humorous side of things. Uh, these are not separate jokes from the plot. They're moments that are humorous because of the characters' interactions with each other. Like that line, they're digging in the wrong place, is played very humorously because they say it together, they come up with the same idea together, and the joke is a very natural thing. But if you look at the conversation on paper, it's never meant to be a punchline, but it is a funny moment. Yeah. And the bad dates part, no matter what Indy does, he's realizing now someone is trying to kill him no matter what. Even his food is not safe at this point. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a weird pun. Like it's supposed to be a joke in a very, very serious manner. Bad dates. And you know what? It's great acting. The monkey wins the scene. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Wait, monkey, play dead. <laughs> Take a nap. Um, also, there. this, I mean, bad dates is one of the most famous quotes from this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's just two words. There's another indie movie that has a two word famous line and it's Last Crusade. 
No ticket. Oh, no ticket. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Infiltrating the mammoth site, Indy is lowered into an underground map room containing a precisely detailed miniature of the city. Using the raw headpiece, he identifies the precise location of the Well of Souls. Okay, so in this scene, you see the light go through the staff and it makes this red line going straight to where the Well of Souls is located. Yep. Uh, no, not where the Well of Souls, where, where the Ark is. Uh, no, it's the Well of Souls. He's, yeah, okay, it's well, the map room. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but when it does that, and it finally ends on it, all of a sudden the light just expands out of that. And I don't know if that was a thing like this is actually happening in front of Indiana Jones or if this is something that's supposed to be more magnificent for the audience to see. Well, yeah, I mean, I want to say it was probably for the audience. Yeah. Because I don't think light is like that. It almost looked like it was a laser. Right. Going down and lighting up this whole area. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if this uh, gems work like that. That's all it said it was. It was a ruby in there. <laughs> um, so that's just like this thing that can create a laser. laser. But I mean, I would have been good with it laser. just highlighting that red spot that was on that part of the city. But yeah, having it blow up kind of like that, that was a dramatic effect that, you know, doesn't age very well. Yeah. Uh, sneaking around the gigantic camp, Indy is shocked to find Marion alive, but bound and gagged. Indy starts to free her, but when she reveals that the Nazis keep asking about him and what he knows, he realizes he can't cut her loose without revealing his presence to the Nazis. The Nazis already know he's there. They've been trying to kill him since he arrived. They just don't know where he's at. Well, okay. Fine. They don't know where he's at. Specifically. I mean, they probably know he's in the area. They got to think he's got to be in the area. Uh, we get the scene with Marion where she and Belloc have the drinking game so she can dull his senses and try to escape. I firmly believe there was an act on her the entire time. Me too. Uh, and he got her dressed up and she cleans up pretty good. I mean, she'll be sloppy drunk in a few seconds, but she looks nice. Oh well, yeah, she does. She looked nice before though. I kind of like what she was wearing before also though. <laughs> also she, good. Now she tries to escape and Tote stops her at the door. And every, I remember seeing this when I was younger and laughing because of how stupid it sounded. Where Tote says, we meet again, Fraulein. You Americans, you're all the same. Always overdressing for their wrong occasions. The dude is wearing a suit in the desert. I think that's the whole point of the line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's used to cold Germany. I mean, if he was in native clothing, you think he he would be he would look so far off? <laughs> he plays the German Nazi perfect. Down to he's got to have that nice cut, crisp uniform suit. Yeah. Higher time. Also, he pulls then, out the hanger. Yeah, they all freak out because it's just nunchucks. <laughs> they all they think it's nunchucks. And I'm like, how many Nazis do you see wielding nunchucks? Uh, how many are how many archaeologists whip uh, have a bullwhip? Just one. There's one. Okay. Late that oh, afternoon, thanks. late that afternoon, Indy and Sala sneak a digging party of their own to the actual location of the Well of Souls. Late into the night, they finally reveal the roof of the chamber, and to Indy's horror, it is filled with dangerous snakes. Indy clears an area of snakes with burning torches, then lures himself into the chamber and burns many of the snakes alive with flaming gasoline. Sala follows, and the two eventually find the gigantic stone chest containing the Ark. They remove it and place it into a crate. Just after Sala hoists himself out, the rope is dropped into the hole and Belloc appears with Dietrich. Belloc brags about, again, stealing Indy's find and how he'll seal him in the chamber to die. Before the roof is closed up, 
Tote throws Marion in the chamber over Belloc's protests. Now, I think the protest that Belloc has is because originally it was written that they had a little thing going on. Mm-hmm. I agree, too. Uh, yeah, he's got, he has some kind of feelings for her. What'd you think of this scene where you see R2-D2 and C-3PO on the screen? I've heard of this before, but I forgot about it. Yep. Um, when you watched it, did you see it? I did. See, I, now I got now I want to go back and try to watch and try to find it. Because, I, like I said, I've heard of it before, but I never saw it. Yeah, so I got the scene clip on the notes right there. So you can check out where it happened. But it is a picture of, and on the wall, as hieroglyphics, there's C-3PO and R2-D2. Because Lucas and Spielberg are always giving each other Easter eggs in each other's movies. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, granted, it, it could be real. I mean, it was a long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away, though. You know what? And then you're going to complain about the maps. I- <laughs> Screwing up the maps in a history piece is one thing. Throwing an Easter egg in there is not another thing. Okay, now we're back. Uh, Glad we got that in. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of all those snakes, Steve? What do you think of them, huh? Why does it have to be snakes? <laughs> um, as I'm thinking about all this, and when he find, when he gets down there, I'm like, gasoline all over the snakes, burn them. Great idea. Where'd they get the gas from? Thank How'd you. They go to bring it. <laughs> and let's just say. As you said before, that they were digging, uh, I think this set on the headpiece, they're digging in the wrong place a mile away. Yeah. When Belloc looks over to where they're excavating, it is not a mile away. It's like 100 yards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm like, let's just say it was a mile away. What did they say? Oh, snakes, let's go get some gas. One guy walk over there, go grab gas from all of these Nazis. Not Nobody think twice about it and bring it back. It's just, yeah, where'd they get the gas from? Great yeah. idea. Um, again, I don't think Peter would have liked that. No. Um, so, no, I don't like it whatsoever. Uh, no, 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 no. I don't care if it's a little black racer. They're going to just you know, stick a little tongue out for you. Um, when he lands. Steve, in you are Sala. <laughs> just like when he, when he rolls over, he goes, asps, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Um, when he lands in front of that cobra. Okay. There is a mistake here. It's a famous mistake that you can see the plexiglass reflection between him and the cobra. I have never been able to see this. Have you? No, I tried to find it because I knew this was supposed to happen. And I looked closely. I think if maybe we would have watched the original. Maybe. You could see it. But films have been re-released. There's another, like, filter on there that might have made it more might have made it tougher to see yeah um but no even when they zoom in on the cobra it's got to be like right there and the reaction of harrison ford's face even with the plexiglass i guarantee is genuine (laughs) oh absolutely i I don't care if there is if i'm in i'm sitting at my kitchen table and if there is a cobra all the way across (laughs) on the other side of my property i am reacting the same way let alone inches from your face yeah. Because how big is this plexiglass? Is oh, it completely surrounding the Cobra? Because that would be the only way I would want to do it. And I'd that, want to test how heavy this thing is. It was it was around the Cobra, yeah. Okay, because that's – I don't care. It's a genuine reaction. Okay. Uh, the arc. 
we finally see the Ark in person and uh, it's pretty magnificent, but <laughs> to be honest, it does look a little heavy. And I'm wondering if they would have used a few more people down there to bring this thing out. Not only that, but the lid to take off to get to the Ark. Yeah. It's like they're going, and then they just throw it like it, like it was nothing. Right. And that looks really heavy, but you know, they did have those poles that they stuck in. For Lifting leverage. at the same time, I don't know. I, maybe I can see it. They got some leverage in there, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, now, when Marion gets thrown in, uh, this is the first time where I go, something screwy here. Because <laughs> Marion clearly got a taste of Captain America's serum. She should have been, at the very least, incapacitated in some way with that fall from that height. I'm glad you're coming over to the to the light side. That's just something I would say. I, I took it right from my best friend. I mean, <laughs> Marion gets her, she gets her butt kicked in this movie. Oh, absolutely. Um, but because of her character, she handles it very well. She's a badass. But I agree. It's a, it's a, it is a brutal fall how she's, well, one, it doesn't look like she would grab onto that part of the statue from the mouth of it as how she's thrown in and all of a sudden okay she made it there right and then how she falls she bounces off that and then <laughs> indiana catches her and i'm thinking that is one hell of a catch right because how did it not knock over indiana <laughs> but he drops her and she lands in front of the cobra ah uh, yes drops her and then yeah then she crawls up on him so okay all right i which, forgot about that which i when, thought she just stayed up on him the whole yeah time. which when indy has burning all those snakes before she gets down there. Why do you take out the Cobra first? The plexiglass. Oh yeah, the plexiglass is doing it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> while Marion and Indy fight off the snakes, Indy notices a wall with holes that snakes are crawling through. He climbs a mammoth statue and with all his might breaks it from its foundation and it crashes through the wall. The two find an opening to the surface and discover the airfield at the excavation camp where a Nazi flying wing is waiting to fly the Ark out. The two sneak up to the plane, but Indy is attacked by a mechanic and a prolonged fight ensues that is joined by a burly German soldier who pummels Indy before being punched backward and shredded to bits by the plane's propeller. Marion seizes one of the plane's machine guns and opens fire on Nazi soldiers, in the process setting a fuel dump aflame. The fire destroys the area and the plane explodes, but Indy and Marion escape. They couldn't try to kill Marion twice. No. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I, th this has bothered me forever. That escape from the room is troubling because if the well of souls is underground and the only way to get there is to dig downwards, why couldn't they just approach it from the side since that's how they escape from it? So I saw, I immediately thought of the same thing, especially yeah, when they exited. I yeah. mean, unless it's a sealed room on that side. So when she enters that area where all those dead bodies are, that's underground, and then they climb up through those rocks to then push out. Yeah. Okay. So unless that room is completely sealed, because, I mean, there's no doorway. He does bash through an entire wall with this massive statue. Yeah. Um, so that's my guess, is that that was a completely sealed room. Okay. Um, and m maybe that was done on purpose as a distraction for where the Ark was, because it is the Well of Souls. They think they'd have some kind of a graveyard mentality. In there. Completely sealed, except for that one brick in the wall, which is clearly not attached to anything that he pushes through. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one they know that's the wall, unless they, oh, I don't know. I think that was just bad special effects. That's all I think. I don't, I don't blame them for that. I think it's just bad special effects because it was like, you have all these bricks in the wall and you're like, well, that's the one that's loose, obviously. And then when he pushes it out, I mean, that's a massive brick. Yes. They push it down. And then it, then, then my, then my mind just starts going. It says it goes down the rabbit hole and they made pyramids out of this. Right. It's like, oh my gosh, it's insane on how they did all that. Well, we know the aliens did it, so. That's true. <laughs> but going back to the scene, I love the scene with Marion. Yeah. When she gets trapped in that uh, room. Obviously, oh. the dead bodies, the skeletons, yep. you know, they, they don't scream. But the sound effects of all the screaming going on when they're falling on top of her. And then you see the one skull, the one skeleton with a snake crawling out of it. Comes out of its mouth. It is just pure terror frightening. That's a heavy metal I, album cover. <laughs> it's tough to watch every single time. And it's from 1981. It's still badass. Yes, yes. And now we're going to go a little bit forward here to the plane fight with the big bald guy. Um, and I wrote, I wrote here, of all the action set pieces, this, in my opinion, is the weakest, but it's still great. That big, bald bastard got filleted by that propeller, and it was awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a sloppy fight. But again, I think I said this before in the bar scene. I think it's got to be the sloppy fight, especially to the point where Indy beats up the one guy, and then he comes out and like, Ugh. Right. All right, all right, give me a second. I mean, that's, that's – I don't think he wants to get into these – this fall break because he's a brawler they're all just throwing haymakers and you know what he knew he was outdone yeah so what does he do he kicks him in the nuts and then he throws sand in his eye he he knows he can't beat him by punching him so he turns into a little cheater yeah you know and that's what's great about it no i agree it's it is the weakest one and yet it, it is still really good now you know that bald guy comes back in the franchise right uh, I can't uh, believe you. I can't remember. Off the yeah. Top of my head. The, no, the, whoa, whoa. Time out. Time out. How? The same actor. I mean, the same actor. Okay. The okay. same actor is in Last Crusade. Don't worry. We'll I get to that when we I talk about Last Crusade. I can't think. Well, then that's just got to be an Easter egg then. Yeah. That's uh, fine. I'm good with it. Don't, don't, don't be crap. I'm going to crap on that movie enough. I don't need you. Don't need your help with it. <laughs> gonna crap on last crusade it's a good movie okay. it is a good movie but yeah. i don't know yeah dietrich orders his men to transport the ark by truck to cairo when sala finds indy and marion he's overjoyed they're alive and tells them of dietrich's plan indy takes a horse and pursues the convoy seizing the truck containing the ark and surviving a brutal chase and fight with nazi soldiers to drive the ark to safety in the melee indy forces dietrich and bellock's car off the road delaying their pursuit okay this is a minutiae issue that I've got here. That truck convoy has gone. They have left. They are long gone before Sala, Mary, and Indy have their conversation about what he's going to do next. And that's when he grabs the horse and starts running with the horse to the Indy music. And we all go, yeah, but horses can run at 30 miles per hour tops. Cars in the 30s are running about 60 miles per hour tops. That horse ain't catching up to the convoy. I don't care what the shortcut was. It was never going to happen. I mean, yeah, they might go 60 miles an hour, but are they going full tilt? Oh, they're like a bat out of hell out of there. I don't know. There are some editing scenes where, bad editing, where you see, 
the scene going this fast and then you see it again going this fast. Yes. So I think the speed on how everything was wasn't consistent throughout there, obviously with cuts and whatnot. I hate when um, editing does this. Like editing, it's yeah. it's like Lord of the Rings when the, the one elf is being chased by the nine and for some reason they never seem to catch her even though they're always right on top of her. <laughs> yeah, no, this is my least favorite scene of the whole movie. I, I did not like the car scene because it just seemed, I don't know, it seemed too easy for Indy. You know, he's in the car, he's in the truck by himself and all these people are trying to get him. Like the well, one scene that bugged me the most is when the motorcycle comes up next to him. And yeah. I mean, really? How do you not think that you're just going to get knocked off the road in this motorcycle? <laughs> and he just kind of looks and goes, and then he knocks them off and then they go off. You know, it's all it takes. There was no surprise in that whatsoever. I was like, oh, you dummies. What makes you think that you were going to do anything? And not to mention that, what were all those guys in the truck doing this entire time? It wasn't until all these cars got knocked off the side of the road thinking, wait, maybe we should do something. It's not like they got radioed to go, hey, may, might want to go get the guy in the truck, see well, what's going on. Then you have the car in the front of the truck, or in front of the truck that has the machine gun on it, and it starts to fire at the truck with all the Nazis on it. <laughs> you know, but it's Indiana's on there, so they really didn't care. So Collateral the, damage. Spielberg did not direct this entire scene. This scene was actually the second director on, so this was his his work with it. Although that that makes sense. Yeah. That it totally makes sense. Maybe it would have been uh, deftly shot better, uh, maybe shorter, um, but it's also the editing bay. The editing put this thing together also, and mm -hmm. you could have shortened this thing up real fast. Yeah. And, and speaking of getting ass kicked, uh, Indy, good Lord. <laughs> okay. He gets shot in this one. He gets dragged behind the truck. And his clothes, by the way, are not even close to being as ripped as they should be. Well, I mean, they say the best thing to wear on a motorcycle, just in case, is to wear leather. What about his khakis? Those should be ripped to shreds. <laughs> he should be a leather jacket and then frayed khakis like he's been on an island forever. And he probably shouldn't have his hat. And the hat should be gone at this point. Yeah. Um, no, I agree with it. But, I mean, I'll tell you, it is when he's on the front grill and he's kind of looking around like, oh crap, what should I do? With a bullet in his arm. Not only that, the guy was punching him with a bullet in his arm. Right. <laughs> right on the wound. It's like, not only that, it's just getting a little bit more to it. But when he crawls in the truck, I'm like, wait a minute. He's not, no way. And it's so cool watching him go onto the truck. But then when he's being dragged behind the truck, that looks a lot worse than actually walking or hand walking yourself underneath the truck going in the opposite direction. Yeah, It looks a little bad, but then again, how do you shoot that? I don't know, but it looked good. I mean, I thought like, it looked a little weird on screen. It does that, look, yeah, it does look weird, but that's how it would look. I guess. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> he and Marion board a tramp steamer that will take them to a safer location, but a Nazi submarine captures the ship. The ship's captain tells Belloc and Dietrich to take the Ark and leave Marion behind for their own amusement. Dietrich takes Marion aboard the sub with the Ark anyway. Indy suddenly appears as the sub leaves and boards it while the ship's crew cheer him on. Um, Marion, India, India, this is another one of my favorite quotes. You're not the man I knew 10 years ago. And he goes, it's not the years, honey. It's the mileage. That was a Harrison Ford ad lib. 
Yep. Uh, and right. I, I, as I get older, this quote resonates with me more and more. <laughs> it's very true. We also get a great yell from Harrison Ford when she turns the mirror down on him and it slaps him in the face. <laughs> and you can hear the yell from outside the ship. <laughs> yeah. I think that is the culmination of all the crap that he went through. And that was just like the last straw. And Does that sound worse? <laughs> that sounded worse getting hit with a mirror than getting shot in the arm. <laughs> <laughs> we don't hear that yell again until Indy gets uh, drinks the blood in Temple of Doom. He does the same yell. Oh, okay. Uh, Mary and Indy, they reconnect, they kiss. This scene is exactly how a romance was done back in the day with the swelling music and all that. It's very 1930s. It is. Yeah. And it looks like uh, she got over what was ever bothering her about Indiana in the first place. Well, she was young. Well, she's really, young really young. Yeah, apparently. Like, you know, illegally young. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what happened with the Ark when it was on the ship? Because the, the rat starts having a meltdown and the box burns. I think this is just the forces of God interacting with everything and you know i was listening again i was listening to this raiders podcast this morning and um it's actually done with um oh what's his face from the league the ball guy paul Shear. yes he he was actually doing it and um you know they said something about this scene because of all the animals and how well they did with this and they even talked about the rat yeah and how the rat interacted with this like there was this something was radiating from the arc to mess up even the rats there and I guess apparently it was a deaf rat that they used and the animal train or the animal guy said yeah it can throw off their equilibrium which is exactly what it was happening yes. during this shot and Spielberg says I love it we're using it okay. it's like all those little those little things it's like the animal gods just came together on this movie <laughs> They the animals are the unsung heroes of this movie they are yeah uh, Indy with a bum arm not only can go underneath a truck, hold on to a whip, climb the whip, get on the truck, make it back into the truck, but also is able to swim across open water to a submarine. I mean, you didn't even mention getting hit in the face with a mirror. And got hit in the <laughs> face. Well, I'm just talking about the arm right now. <laughs> right there. Uh, clearly the Nazis don't understand how to close their doors on the submarine because he just opens the thing up the hatch and gets in. Does he get in the submarine? Well, he has to. Otherwise, it goes no. underwater. I don't think I don't think it went underwater because as soon as they, because I think the sirens are going off underneath and they notice the island right then and there, and he's still standing up there. I don't think it goes underneath. But aren't the Nazis still on their boat, the original boat? They're, they're on the submarine, yes, but I don't think it goes underwater because all of a sudden the island is like right there. Okay. Okay. And I thought it was a great hero moment. The music, the salute to the ship, the cheering from oh, the no. ship. Even the guy goes, yeah. No, no, no. It is a really cool moment. And sometimes cool moments mask the logistical errors. Yes. Uh, and when they're done well, it's easy to forgive. And when they're not done well, and you still sit there going, yeah, but that's a problem. Then you know you got an issue with what had happened beforehand. <laughs> 
Spielberg knows how to pull at all those things to make you go, hey, guys, this does not matter. What matters is that he made it on the, on the submarine. Um, the sub crosses the Mediterranean Sea. It crosses the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. And arrives at a small island in the Aegean that houses a German naval yard. Indy sees Marion being escorted off the sub and knocks out a sentry, stealing his uniform. Belloc, Dietrich, Tote, and Marion all march inland. This is where he steals the guy's clothes. <laughs> and again, another fit. humorous spot that was just, it meshes so well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When they enter a canyon, it, Indy holds them all at bay with a German rocket launcher, threatening to destroy the Ark. Belloc calls Indy's bluff, knowing Indy wants to know what the Ark contains as much as anyone. Indy finds he can't carry out his threat and is seized. Um, why doesn't he just blow it up? Because him and Bel Belloc knows that Indy and him are exactly the same because it's history. It is history. Because that's Belloc, exactly what Belloc says. Because Belloc is right again. Is it? Is it? He is. They're one and the same. Yeah. He knows he's not going to blow anything up. Okay. Now we get to this. At an elaborate ceremony atop the mountain, Indy and Marion tied to a pole can only watch as the ark is open, but it contains nothing but sand. The remains of the stone tablets. No sooner is it open, however, than its spirits suddenly appear. Indy, remembering an ancient code that requires people to close their eyes and not look at them, the now freed spirits, yells for Marion to do the same. The two withstand the mayhem that ensues as the energy of the Ark surges forth and its spirits attack the now terrified Nazis, killing the entire contingent. Tote and Dietrich's faces melt as they scream in horror. Belloc himself explodes. The energy mass surges high into the night sky, carrying even the corp every corpse toward the heavens before returning to the Ark and resealing it leaving Indy and Marion drained, but freed. There is a lot to talk about here. First, oh, the Nazis performing a Jewish rite. Seems like a conflict of interests. So. <laughs> okay. I was trying to think about this because it's like, why are they, they, they gave their rationale for taking the Ark and doing this ritual. They wanted to see it before Hitler got his hands on it and destroyed it. Which or, makes sense. Yeah. They wanted to investigate it themselves. But my thing is if they they had to have known something were to come out of this, why would they put their own people at risk? That was my thing. But then again, I think... I, I think the rationale... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think the it's a very closed minded way of thinking that we're going to do this our way and not risk anything else and blah, 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 blah. They don't think about the whole picture of it and putting your people at risk. They think of their army as collateral damage. They don't really care about their army. Cause that's, I just think of all the soldiers that are right there that just get eliminated. Yes. Um, okay. The end of tote Dietrich and Belloc. What'd you think of this special effects? Awesome. I Freaking love it. it. Tote, how he just melts off. I like I like that special effect better than um, Dietrichson, where he just gets kind of sucked in. Yeah, the fact that his face is melting off is great, and how he just how he screams. <laughs> I love when Tote's face melts because it is so creepy. One, it looks awesome, even though you would see bone, you would see all this, but be, knowing how they tried to do that, it was probably they had probably had a wax figure of him, and they just melted it. 
and then ran the reel forward really fast to make it look like it was going away really fast. Yeah. It just looks cool. And oh, yeah. yeah, Dietrich's his face going inward looks amazing. Bella, I'm like, really? You just exploded his face? Uh, I know that was that was kind of lame. I would have thought something else would have happened to him. Yeah. And uh, Belloc's face of, ah, like that, is on the movie poster. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay, scary ghosts. Why is the arc filled with ghosts? I think you can play the religious card here. And you could just use that as an excuse. This is God's arc. Anything can happen. I remember. I was actually more confused when they pulled out sand. I was like, huh? I was just like the I was just like the Germans. Like, no, they were pissed. But I was just like, I completely forgot that they pulled sand out of there, and all of a sudden, things just start going haywire. You know. I remember someone explaining it to me uh, that the ghosts are actually the spirits of the Jews that they had killed at that point. Oh yeah, it could be. Yeah, it was coming that the the they're coming home to roost, if you will. Yeah, and I thought the special effects were of doing the ghosts. Oh yeah, were really really cool. And I was almost thinking, is this where Ghostbusters got their inspiration? That's what I was thinking. I was like, Ghostbusters does a very similar thing with their ghosts. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Uh, don't look, Marion. Don't look. How did he know not to look? Um, okay, I think this is where Indy did his homework. So. Here's where I think he knew not to look. If you watch Last Crusade, that whole movie is about being humble, averting your eyes, bowing, all that stuff. He knows in the presence of the spiritual, if you will, uh, you are not meant to hear. You are not meant to speak. You are not meant to see. It's about faith. And his having faith, saying, let's not look, let's have faith that will be protected, is the rationale for not looking. I I buy that 110%. Yeah. Okay. Weeks later, Indy and Marcus feud with the army officers over the whereabouts of the Ark. Indy angry that the army has no idea what it has in the Ark, though it appears that they in fact do understand what they have. However, the Ark is sealed in a wooden crate stamped with a government serial number and simply wheeled into a large warehouse containing thousands of similar looking crates that we won't see again until Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So... The U.S. has this and decided to just store it? Well, then store it in a museum! Nope. It just needs to be locked away and forgotten about it. They have top men working on it, though, Steve. Top men. There's nobody working on that. It's in storage. It's the the, the guy wheeling it is the top cart pusher guy. I'll say this right now. If this took place in 2023, they'd have people all over that thing checking it out. Okay? It wouldn't be stored at all. No, and all of humanity would be gone. Right. <laughs> well, there's that. Um, <laughs> well, that's all, folks. According to Top Critics of Rotten Tomatoes, it's got tomato meter reading of 87%, 40 fresh, and 6 rotten. The critics, on average, gave this film a 9 out of 10. It's a high grade. That's pretty good. Their consensus says, quote, featuring bravura set pieces, sly humor, and white knuckle action, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the most consum- consummately entertaining adventure pictures of all time. Mm-hmm. But Steve, there were some naysayers. Dave Kerr. Now, these obviously, these are all in the 2000s because uh, 
They don't have any of those quotes from the 1981. Dave Kerr, the Chicago Reader, says, One would think that a collaboration between Steven Spielberg and George Lucas would produce something better than this giggly pastiche of a Republic serial. I think this guy was burned by the... He did not like the prequel trilogy. (laughs) This is after the prequel trilogy, 2007. Yeah, I think this guy's been burned. Then we get Stanley Kaufman to the New Republic. He says, uh, the picture is offering you a pact. You agree to be a kid again in return for which Raiders will give you old time movie thrills expressed in slick, modern cinematic terms. No, thanks. I don't think there's anything modern cinematic terms in this film. I, I, I don't I don't get what his problem was with any of that sentence, though, because that's kind of the point of the movie is to take you to get you to escape. Yeah, but this is not a kid's movie. I know it's rated PG but I actually agreed with your R rating. <laughs> no, this is a PG. There's no bad nah, words P- in it. No, it's maybe PG-13. Maybe. PG-13. It didn't It didn't exist back then, which is why Jaws is a PG movie. I'll never get over and that. And Temple of Doom, <laughs> by the way. Temple of Doom's a PG yes. movie. Yep. Okay, then we got Eric Shorter uh, of the Daily Telegraph in the UK. It says, it lacks unity of aim, time, place, and action. Worst of all, it lacks thrills. And to think that Mr. Spielberg was once rated as a director of talent. Sad, really? This guy is just a hater. (laughs) Lacks thrills? I don't see Eric Shorter getting any jobs anytime soon beyond the Daily Telegraph. This guy probably liked Master of the Universe. 2023, get out of here. Uh, yeah, I don't know what he's looking at at all. Every, In fact, if you took the opposite of everything this guy says, he's correct. Yes, exactly. Uh, it has unity of aim, time, place, and action. Best of all, thrills. And Mr. Spielberg, you truly are a director of talent. That's that's the opposite of everything, and it makes sense then. <laughs> now, the audience score is a 4.5 out of 5 with 96% agreeing it's a three or higher, but the movie's over. Now, Steve, I've been waiting for this since we talked about doing the indie trilogy because you said Raiders may be your least favorite. Were you entertained? Uh, hell yes, I was. I loved every second of this movie. I'm, I'm giving you your moment. <laughs> Absolutely, I was entertained. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm watching this going, I know Steve's having a good time watching this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm freaking... I, I make one mistake my entire <laughs> Okay, let's figure out whether the awards got it right and whether this movie's worth your time or not. Okay, at the Academy Awards, it had nine nominations, but only won five. So it won for Best Art Direction and Set Direction. It won, no, it was nominated for Cinematography, but it lost to Reds. I've never seen Reds. Excalibur. That's a good one. It was nominated for Best Director, Steven Spielberg, but it lost to Warren Beatty for Reds. Have you seen Reds? I've never seen Reds. Best effects, visual effects, it won for that. It beat out Dragon Slayer. Because of the practical effects. Exactly. (laughs) Best film editing, it won for that. Best music, it lost. 
to Chariots of Fire. Da 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 da. Both are included in the Academy Awards music that they used to play. But how does John Williams lose this today? I am. That is. That this is. Um, Alan Silvestri understands. Well, Steve, I'm going to break your heart right now. John Williams will not win for best music for Temple, and he will not win for Last Crusade, and he will not win for Kingdom. None of the Indiana Jones movies yielded a Oscar win for best music. Well, Kingdom, he should. Well, it's just not original by that time. It's like his Star Wars thing. But okay, that doesn't make any sense. There we go. Because he'll win for Rise of Skywalker or he'll win for all these other ones where it's the same movie. It's the same thing being played over and over again. But then all of a sudden, he won't win for Indiana Jones, which is just as iconic. I mean, you hear the first two tones of that song, you know exactly where you're at. It is a downright travesty. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> When I put all this together, when I was doing the the uh, the notes that night, and you were surprised by how I was cranking them out, it was because I was I was sitting there going, maybe Williams wins next time. No, next time, no. And guess what? Williams is doing Dial of Destiny also. How much do you want to bet he wins for Dial of Destiny? Because that's the and final it's indie not movie. Gonna make it up. Unless they go back and use the Dial of Destiny to change the fact that he should win this damn award during this time. That's the only way I'll accept it. It won for Best Sound. And uh, it actually won a Special Achievement Award the same year it came out for sound effects editing with Ben Burt, who worked on Star Wars. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Even though, you, you, you like those punches that he threw? We didn't talk about any of those. Yeah, that's how punch sounds. Right. Uh, we talked about Fight Club a couple weeks ago. Check that out. Uh, best director at the Golden Globes. It lost to Warren Beatty for Reds. I guess. Yeah, but that was the only, it was only nominated for one award, the Golden Globes. Right. Now we get to the Saturn Awards. Nine nominations, seven wins. At least these people know what they're talking about. Harrison Ford wins for Best Actor. Uh, Karen Allen for Marion Ravenwood. She wins for Best Actress. Best costumes goes to Excalibur. It's a period piece. So was Indiana yeah. Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, but that was further into, I think that was further back in time. I mean, you're dealing with medieval times, those costumes. Okay. Spielberg wins for best director. Uh, it wins for best fantasy film. And best music, it wins. There we go. There we go. Uh, and best special effects it won for that. Best Supporting Actor was Paul Freeman. Belloc, he was nominated, but it lost to Burgess Meredith in Clash of the Titans. I don't know. I don't think so. I think that was a miss. Yeah, Paul Freeman should have won that. Going. Yeah. And uh, Best Writing, it won for that also. Uh, it There were no MTV Movie Awards. There was no Golden Raspberry Awards back then, so that's the end of the awards right there. I think the Saturn Awards got it right, except for Paul Freeman. Yeah, what else, just off the top of your head real quick, what else did uh, Kaz did write? Empire Strikes Back. Okay, that's what I, I knew that name was familiar, okay. Yeah, right. and, <clears throat> and, and Force Awakens. Well, I should have done that. Oh, and 
I believe Rogue One. Okay, so can we just stop it? And I believe he helped with Solo, a Star Wars story. But, you know, the nerds out there will say Lawrence Kasdan really knows what he's talking about. Okay, (laughs) there we go. All right, on to the next segment titled Top 3, Bottom 3. This is where we talk about the three things we want to highlight in this movie, and then we go over the three things that are bad, unforgivable, or downright travesties. We'll start with the top three. Mine are, number three, Indy and his chemistry with everybody in this cast. Harrison's got it with everybody. Yep. Uh, My number two, the arc as the ultimate MacGuffin and everyone's motivation for seizing the arc is different. This is the first time we're actually mentioning the MacGuffin in this. Yes. And I mean, JC, we can get it right now. You can get it right. (laughs) Uh, Number one, Belloc is one of the most underrated villains in movie history, mainly because he hardly feels like a villain at all. Well, he's... I, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to still put Thanos as number one, but his ideology on how he thinks and believes and does everything, you can understand why he's doing what he's doing. The best villains make you question your own values. Yeah. The only thing, the only other villain that I might put as uh, more harshly than this would be just the Nazis in general. Yes. Yeah. So. But to be fair, uh, Belloc is more successful in this movie than Indiana Jones. He gets the, yes. the, the idol at the beginning. He gets the arc at the end. If he hadn't opened it, he won. Yeah, he's definitely the smarter one. He lets somebody else do all the work and then just took it. Exactly. Okay, Steve, what are your top three? Uh, my top three, and this is a very, I think it's good top, a good number three was the music. I mean, what can be better than this? I mean, the music, clearly. Yes. Um, very iconic, loved every part of it. I mean, again, when the music was played throughout, whether it's that really spooky part, you definitely feel it through the music, or you just want to jump up and cheer, like that scene on the submarine. I don't, I don't know why that one sticks out the most, because that's the I know that's the Indiana Jones theme song, but that just felt like a very hero moment. I was just ready to go at that point. Number two, I love the religious and the historical connection. When I first saw the Holy Grail, I, the Last Crusade is with the Holy Grail, and I knew that was a thing, but I didn't know anything about the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. And I think after when I saw this movie when I was younger, I was like, is this actually a real thing? And I'm like, holy crap, this could be, based on your ideologies, it could be a real thing. And I'm like, holy crap. And then I started to notice there's a theme throughout all these Indiana Jones, that it all deals with religion somehow and something that is actually real. So I love that part of it. And my number one, the practical effects. Number one, by far, 40 plus years later, it is still very hard to watch because it's so terrifying. It's so real. Yeah. No, they're great. Um, Also, to piggyback off what you said, the religious historical connection, I think it's mostly the supernatural connection that all these movies have. It's supernatural. Yes. Yes. Uh, Because Temple takes a step back from that. Oh, no. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull takes a step back by not doing something religious. But it is supernatural. Aliens. Yes. And who knows what, di- well, I know what Dial of Destiny is, but I don't, I have I'm not going to no go into idea. I have no idea what that's about. And I'm hoping that is what gets me to buy into it. And I'm going to wait till I see the movie and I'm crossing my fingers and my toes that I see the pattern. I'm like, okay, you got me, but I'm very nervous. 
Okay, bottom three, since we're talking about it. Bottom three, okay, my number three, the maps are historically inaccurate. <laughs> but you could rationalize this by saying, right, but if you're a modern audience watching this, you kind of want to see where he went on the maps that you'd understand. See? Okay, my number two, <laughs> the fact that John Williams didn't win an Academy Award for soundtrack. That is... This is an echo of Endgame and Infinity War. Yep. This is Alan <laughs> Silvestri right here. And my number one, the horse shouldn't have caught up to the convoy and Indy shouldn't have been able to swim to the submarine and get in. I'm convinced he got in because if they went across the Mediterranean, they had to go underwater. Well, he didn't want to go in. He would have been caught if they went in. He could have. And when you, when you see them going up to the island, you see him standing up there. So what would have happened if it decided to go underwater? It didn't. But what would have happened if it had? Indy didn't oh, know that it wasn't going to. It's a submarine. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. We can play that scene all day. Steve, if you see a tornado in the distance and you go, you know what? I'm going to head to the house nearest by, but just sit on the roof and not go inside. Wouldn't you think to yourself, this person's dumb? Well, yeah, it's a tornado. He's supposed to be an academic first. He's climbing on a submarine. A, not a ship. A submarine under marine. Uh, the island was right there. It they wasn't because the, the red dash goes across the Mediterranean Sea and then to the Aegean Island. Come on, let's go. Uh, if you went in, then. <laughs> it never went underneath. Okay, Steve, you're three. <laughs> uh, number three, the truck car chasing scene. I think it was edited poorly. I could even notice with my slightly untrained eye the differences in speed. And when you say it was a different director, it completely makes sense because it just doesn't seem like it fits. Yeah. I mean, it, I, at that point, I was exhausted by all the action go, 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 which – and. But the one part I did like about it was him going underneath the truck. Yeah. You know? And the, so I, I don't know. But that, that I would pick that as my number three. Um, number two, and this might be nitpicky, the special effects, the visual effects from the – if anything to do with the sky in the background. And it was really weird, that scene, because it almost looked like Harrison Ford or Indiana was possessed. He had this weird look on his face, and it was almost villainous. Okay. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. But – um that whole sky and how it comes in the lightning flashes it just it just looked off and i think that's kind of a history on all of these films is that 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 background matte screen or whatever i shouldn't say matte screen but that visual exp um, effect screen is really bad like in um the alligators and temple of doom okay now i'm actually looking up screen rant right now no collider they they have a an article called why the raiders of the lost ark trucks chase is still the franchise's best action scene yes because the boulder isn't i mean someone disagrees with you i don't <laughs> i think it's i think it's a very average scene for this entire thing well it's the weakest no, I think the weakest one is the plane scene. Oh. Yeah. That's hashtag my weakest. It's, in terms of action, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll agree with you on that. Okay, keep going with your list. Uh, number one, snakes. <laughs> Why does it have to be snakes? 
I cringe every single time I see them. I'll be like, nope. Like that is th- those are my spiders, snakes. There are yeah. motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. <laughs> and there's a, like, like why is the ground moving? Yes. <laughs> snakes. Why does it have to be snakes? But not even that. The big boa constrictor that's in the airplane. No way. Uh uh-uh. uh. I'm somebody is leaving that plane, whether it's gonna be me or the snake. And I ain't touching the damn snake. Right. You're jumping out. I'll I'll uh, ride the wing. <laughs> I'm jumping out of that motherfucking plane with that mother without that motherfucking snake. <laughs> okay. Well, time to do the critics rating. We use an A to F scale here on the movie planet. A C is considered average. A plus is the highest. F is the lowest. If the movie's so bad it receives S from all the hosts, it goes to hang out with Waterworld and Masters of the Universe in the movie planet Global Killer. So the question is, what do you give 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark in the action-adventure movie genre by today's standards? Steve, you're up, brother. All right. I'm just extremely happy that finally we are doing Indiana Jones. And man, the wait has paid off. I remember talking with you about this, and this might be and I thought this was going to be the least enjoyable movie in this trilogy. Man, was I wrong. (laughs) This is Adventure 218. This is the granddaddy of adventure movies. For that reason alone, it should be an A. Hell, maybe even an A+. Let's see if I can convince myself. The music. I love John Williams. Every scene grabs you in even further with the music. Sometimes you want to jump out of your your seat scared shitless. (laughs) Other times you want to jump out of your seat and cheer for Indy. It's a great range of emotion that is influenced even more so by the music. The practical effects. They are some of the best that we've seen in a movie and it's only getting started in this trilogy. There are damn frightening to this day. Harrison Ford, he does a great job with Indiana Jones on making it his own thing. Kudos to him. I'm sure he took this job knowing the difficulty of not trying to be like Han Solo. You see some bleeding of the character, I guess, but I believe that Han is Han and Indy is Indy. They are different people to me. The religious aspect is a theme with all of these movies that has me hooked. Movies being the three. (laughs) These are real ideologies, not something that is made up for the movie. Religion in movies, to me, that's terrifying because it's the unknown. The fighting in this movie is sloppy and is very Western-like. This is coming from a guy that's not too high up on Westerns, but it fits great. Indiana is a brawler, and he fights by throwing haymakers. But when he gets into things over his head, he cheats. He kicks you (laughs) the balls. He throws sand in the eyes. He waits for the big propeller to chop you up into little bits. I don't want a choreographed fight for him. I think this would have I think this worked out better. I can't think of a better action adventure movie than this one. It's an A plus. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? It's an A plus. Okay. Oh, oh boy. Okay. Wow. Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. Go okay. ahead and knock it down. Here we, here we go. <laughs> okay. 
throughout this retrospective, you'll hear me compare this franchise to the Die Hard franchise. Both have regular guys as a leading character in the movie. Indiana Jones doesn't have any particular superpowers. He's not smooth. He's getting his ass kicked at every turn. He's not the right hero. He's the hero we have right now. Both movies have a director who is clearly operating at the top of their craft. Both show the bad guys getting exactly what they want before outsmarting, not outfighting their opponent. And when you think of the top action movies of all time, you think Die Hard. When you think of the top adventure movies of all time, you think Raiders of the Lost Ark. Spielberg, George Lucas, and John Williams were basically a dream team, and it shows on the screen. There are practically no plot holes. There are some small problems in continuity with the maps, but if you don't look this up, guess what? You're not gonna notice. I mean, up until now, I'd say nearly all of our listeners wouldn't even know those navigational issues. Hell, I had to look them up just to try to find something, everybody, okay? It wasn't like I knew all this shit ahead of time. Let's not pretend like I'm an all-knowing beast here. Which leads to the writing, which is one of the few times where the and-then method of writing actually ends up working. Normally, it feels like the writers had no idea where the story was going from scene to scene. But the writing of Lawrence Kasdan paired with the creativity of George Lucas and the direction of Steven Spielberg makes this movie a timeless classic that is still fun to watch 40 plus years later. The argument that you could erase Indy from the movie and the Nazis would still get the Ark is true. They also would have killed themselves and the Ark would still be sitting in that cavernous area. The mission the US agents gave Indy was to obtain the Ark. Did he succeed? Yes. So, Indy is absolutely integral to this movie. Yes, the Nazis were digging in the wrong place, but they were also digging until they found the Well of Souls. If Belloc hadn't seen the Indy digging a quote-unquote mile away, they would have never obtained the Ark. This is an example of the journey being as important as the payoff. The Nazis getting the Ark isn't the end of the movie. In the end, it's Indy's knowledge that allows him and Marion to survive and obtain the Ark for the good guys. Overall, this movie is one of those core movies in history that when people think of an adventure movie, this is the franchise that always comes up. Not just in the 1980s, but also in the 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and here we are today. And I'm hard pressed to think of a movie that is this old and still, if it was released in theaters today, would make at least 90% of its original box office, which guess what? Would put it around a billion dollars. It is a great adventure movie. And for that reason, I'm giving this movie an A plus, baby. <laughs> a plus. So if we revisit the Pantheons, Steve, we have something interesting that's occurred. We have a king. We have a new king. Raiders of the Lost Ark is officially ahead of Die Hard. Uh, and the only reason why is because Die Hard got an A from JC and an A minus from Steve. Yep. Steve, you paved the path for Raiders of the Lost Ark, your least favorite indie movie <laughs> to be the number one in the action adventure how does it make you feel sir i mean i am not on record of saying that 
You're not on record. No, I've had one of the few recording conversations we had where I didn't record it. But boy, I wish I had. But in doing this, we knock out Mad Max the Road War to the Road Warrior. It gets knocked out of the Pantheon. And if you look here, we got an Indy, we got a John McClane, we got a Mad Max, we got a John Wick. So we got four different heroes now making up this action adventure piece right here. Wow, and we got a couple more indie movies to go. We do, including many's favorite, Last Crusade. Yep. Um, which, by the way, do you want to hear my little theory about Indie and Die Hard? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I thought you kind of went through that with your final saying. I kind of saw some parallelism there. Those were some of the parallels, but you're going to find that the movie trajectory themselves is very similar also. Die Hard is fantastic. Raiders, fantastic. The second movies, Die Hard 2, that's a step back. Temple of Doom, it's a step back. Then the third movies, Last Crusade, some say possibly better than the original. Then you've got Die Hard with a Vengeance, some say better than the original. The fourth movie, Live Free or Die Hard, everybody hated because it, did, it didn't feel like a Die Hard movie. The fourth movie, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, everybody hated because it didn't feel like an indie movie. And now we're at the fifth movie, Dial of Destiny, and its parallel is a good day to die hard. I don't think I've seen that. I, I quit after the third one. To be fair, a good day to die hard got a D minus out of me, an F out of Sam, and a D out of JC. Even JC couldn't find good in this movie. <laughs> Wow. Well, it's the F-15 moment. I was going to say. Oh, I did see that then. <laughs> I'll have to watch it again. No, you don't need to do that to yourself. <laughs> okay, so, revisiting, we got an A-plus in there now. But do you love this movie, like this movie, the none of the above? I'll start. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I love this movie. I love this movie. I'll love this movie till the day I die. Steve? I, I absolutely loved it. I would love to watch it again. Yeah, but right we're now. not. But we're not going to watch it again because Steve, you've got other homework to do. Oh, this is the best homework assignment I've ever gotten. That's all we got time for today, Movie Planeteers. Next week we'll be watching Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. You can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean and give us a four or five star review. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, and follow our Instagram. The opinions expressed on the Movie Planet podcast are those of the individual hosts. The Movie Planet podcast is not affiliated with, prepared for, approved, or licensed by any entity that created any films discussed or reviewed herein. All movie clips and music included in the podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Steve, any last words? Bring on the Temple of Doom. <laughs> I am looking forward to it. The itch has been scratched. I am all in on Indy. I'm watching it tonight. 
All right. I have already beat Diablo 4. I can take a little break from that. I am ready to watch the Temple of Doom. And I know you already saw the parallelisms there with Die Hard. And I... Uh, I, I you know what? I'm not going to say anything because it, I've already said stuff in the past before and I was wrong. So, you know what? I'm just going to let this one go. Why don't you plant your flag? Say, no, plant your flag. Say something. Let's no, see. I'm not planting any flag. I'm... Uh, the, the only flag I'll play is I'm looking forward to watching this. I'm looking forward to watching it again. I watched it uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was like, okay. And it, it, I maintain it's actually much better than people think it is. I I think so, too. It's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, but the more I talk about it, kind of let it marinate. I think it's a film that when you first see it, it's like, it's not as good. But as it sits, you start thinking about it marinating, I think it gets better. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thanks for listening, and happy movie watching. We're out.